Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to Oral Delight Show 154. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Starship Sofa. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what's coming up. Well, I'll, I'll give you a little sh- couple of announcements first, and then we'll jump into what's coming up in the day. Sure. First off, is it's a call for anyone to help out. The Sofanaut Awards. Mark Bowman, who does the Sofanaut Awards, Mark's emailed us and says, "Unfortunately, you'll not be able to do the, the Sofanaut Awards this year." So I was thinking, if there is, and don't worry if there's not. Do you know what I mean? If, if there's not, we we don't we don't do. But if there is anyone out there who wants to take over this year and run the Sofa Note Awards and do a couple of little articles on it and, you know, have it all laid out how Mark does it. I'm sure Mark will help, you know, if you drop him an email. If anybody wants to do that, please shout up, drop us an email and let us know and we'll, we'll still carry on with the Sofa Note Awards. Next up is, we've got some great little bit of news there. Our good friend, Mr. Jason Sanford, who I just think is a fantastic new writer, up and coming, you know, going to be one of the stars of tomorrow, isn't Interzone, Interzone, it'll be Interzone 231, the November, December 2010 edition. They're going to have a Jason Sanford special. And, I mean, we all know, you know, the kind of the cutting-edge stories Interzone's playing and picking. Well, they've dedicated three stories over there for Jason Sanford, which I think, you know, and Jason's over the moon. So I'll put a link on to the Interzone site and the Jason site and do go over and just say congratulations and, you know, look out for that edition. And that'll be well worth digging your hands deep into them pockets and coughing up. So this is what's coming up in the day show. Fantastic lineup of day. Whoa-hoa. First off, we've got an interview with one of the writers who's appearing in Starship Sofa Stories Volume 2. He's also got another major novel coming out as well. It is... 
none other than Stephen R. Donaldson. Then we jump into looking back at genre history with Amy H. Sturgis. Main fiction comes from Ben Bova with a fantastic story called Gravity, narrated by our very own Fred Heimbar. Then we have a Dragon Con special report from Randall L. Swartz. Next up is Starship Sova Interrogations. We sit down with Samuel R. Delaney. We have another main fiction. It comes from Jack Dan and the story is Cafe Culture. Then right at the end, we're going to have a competition. I have three copies of Science Fiction Masterworks, H.G. Wells, The Food of the Gods. Three little hardbacks there, fantastic little books. Look out how you can win them. So that is what's coming up in today's show. On the line now is Stephen R. Donaldson. Many moons ago, quite a number of years ago, me and my good friend Kieran O'Carroll, you were the first person we interviewed. We cut our teeth on interviewing you, and what a fantastic experience that was. Thank you so much all them years ago. Well, I'm glad it worked out well for you. And I, I see you're still, still writing away, and your new book's out, Against All Things Ending. And what a monster. This is... That's it. It's 804 Well, pages. I understand that it's fairly substantial, but it's a large print book um, by the standards of many modern fantasy novels. And I'm thinking of Stephen Erickson here. It's really not all that long. And it is the, the third book out of four in the last Chronicles of Thomas Covenant. And it's shorter than book two. It's longer than book one, but it's shorter than book two. It's, it's, I mean, honestly, it's one, probably one of the, because I've got an advanced reader copy. So I'm not too sure. When does it actually go on sale, this one? Well, in the United States, it's in uh, mid-October. And in the UK, it's uh, in the last week in October. Right, right. Oh, well, certainly look out for that and give us some more plugs on the show. But like I say, this is one monster of boot. How... Does it, how do you go about, Stephen, writing a book this big, you know, the mechanics of it? Because I, I certainly haven't, haven't even started reading it, but I'm just, there must be so many characters in there and so many plots and twists. How do you go about just getting all that sorted out? Well, the first thing that's uh, crucial to the way I work is that I plan my stories backwards. Um, I started from the ending of book four, and I figured out everything that I was going to need backwards until I got to the a place where I could begin book one. So that means I know in advance what elements the stories need to have and at what point in the story those elements need to come into play and when it's time to resolve one element and pick up a new one. And then, of course, I have mountains of notes. I, I, uh, <coughs> I would love to be able to trust my memory all the time, but sadly, I'm human. And uh, sometimes my mind plays little tricks on me, so um, I have mountains of notes to try to make sure that I keep track of the various plot threads and the various characters and the various themes and sometimes even the imagery that I want to work with uh, during the course of the story. Has it been 
or is it for you the process of writing and easy to to write? Is it you know I'm just like I said, it's just such a, a size, and just for for someone like me to undertake that, you know, it's I it just seems baffling to be able to kind of put all that together. For you doing the actual writing, is that a, is it a joy to do that, or is it is it something that you've just got to face that computer every day and think I've got to get this thing done? Well, I think of it as wrestling with the angel of the Lord. It is really not. <laughs> an easy process for me. I'm in awe of the fluency of some of my fellow writers who can, well, Steven Erickson keeps leaping to mind because he's writing such a vast epic fantasy. And uh, even though his books are a couple hundred pages longer than mine, he can do one a year. Um, I can't come close to something like that. I... It's taking me three years a book, and um, that's, well, I guess it's the story of my life. I'm a plotter. I, I struggle my way through one small step at a time, and I eventually cover very large distances. But uh, you'd never know it just by looking at me on any individual day because I struggle with the prose, I struggle with my characters, I struggle with uh, the all the different pieces that I'm trying to fit together, and uh, if you were to watch me, nothing about it would seem easy. <laughs> yeah, you know, when you got your, say, your first draft, or you can't, see, let's say your final draft of this book, did, is there a lot of cutting that gets, you know, is there a lot of wastage that you've just, you've wrote, and you've, you've, you've had to write it again, or waste it, and you know, you've cut it down. It might have been like, say, a, a thousand pages long. I do always cut down my books by uh, uh, probably 10% each time I rewrite it. Um, I move so slowly that there's uh, quite a bit of repetition in my first drafts, which is really there for my benefit. I'm hoping that my readers are going to be able to read this book in a, a week or two or three. But it took me a year and a half or two years to produce the first draft. So my experience of the story is much slower than I want it to be for my readers. And so I'm not always aware of how much I repeat myself. Um, and in these first drafts, that repetition really serves a positive function because it helps keep me focused on what it is I'm trying to communicate. But my readers don't need all that repetition. And so uh, sometimes I actually myself little essays about what's going on with this particular character at a particular time because I want to keep it all straight. The reader really doesn't need those things. So... When I start the revision process, I always do boil the book down, uh, as I say, about 10% each time I go through it. Do, do you have, once you kind of, you, you've getting your book done, do you, do you have a team of readers that are going to read it before you kind of really send it off to the publishers? I do. Uh, publishing has changed a great deal uh, over the years, and one of the changes that affects me the most is that editors really don't have the time to give detailed feedback that they used to do. When I first got published 30 years ago, my editor would send me 20-page letters with uh, very specific c comments about 
you know, practically on a page-by-page basis of the manuscript. Well, I'm the kind of writer who profits from that sort of information. It really helps me improve what it is I'm doing. Since editors today simply can't afford the time to do that, I've had to develop a very small team of private readers who basically fulfill that same function. They go through the book with me page by page, and they they provide me what I call reader symptomatology. They tell me what it it's what it's like to read a particular page or a particular scene or a particular character. They don't tell me what they think needs to change. They just tell me how it made them react. And based on their reactions, I'm able to figure out what it is that needs to change. Is, is that a better process for you then now than the, the old editor style when you started writing? Well, it depended on how arrogant the editor was. My original <laughs> editor was Lester Del Rey, and I like to say that when Lester Del Rey talked to God, God was the one kneeling. Uh, <laughs> Lester was absolutely sure that he knew how to write my books better than I did, and he was extremely heavy-handed in his demands for changes, uh, specific changes. And very often, those changes violated my view of what I was trying to do. And so we had long and terrible fights. Um, Other editors that I've worked with have been um, equally meticulous, but they haven't tried to tell me how to change the book. They've simply tried to help me understand what they think went wrong. And when I get that kind of information, then... uh, that I'm able to rewrite effectively. How long did you did you work with Lester Del Rey? I'm fascinated to find out a little bit about that. Well, we worked together through the first four Covenant books. Um, we uh, our divorce came <laughs> during the fifth Covenant book because that was the place where he he really wanted to take over the story. Uh, you know, I'm not sure the specific content of what we were fighting about matters all that much anymore, but I really felt that uh, what he wanted me to do violated uh, my integrity as a storyteller. And he felt that my refusal to do what he told me violated his integrity as an editor. So um, at that point, he basically rejected the Fifth Covenant book. Uh, but his uh, our publisher, the company he worked for, uh, didn't back him up. Uh, it, when he told me to go looking for another publisher, they just said, "No, Lester, we're sorry. We're going to publish Steve, and uh, we'll just find him a new editor." So they just moved me to a different editor and went on publishing my books. Um, this was uh, created a rift for me between Lester and Judy Lynn Del Rey, and that rift was never really, never really healed. Um, they took offense that uh, Lester had been overruled. And what was it like, see, after then, after you, you kind of moved away from Lester Del Rey, was it a, a breath of fresh air? Were you just able to kind of totally concentrate and get back to the way you wanted to write it, was it? It was a relief to work with somebody else. The woman who was assigned to be my editor uh, was much more collegial in her approach, uh, less less authoritative and we were able to uh, 
talk through uh, the kinds of editorial changes that uh, she wanted in a in a much more relaxed fashion. And so I found that uh, very very helpful. And I was after after Lester, uh, who was uh, a challenge at all times. Uh, it was a relief. <laughs> well. Stephen, if you can, just give a little bit of the story for Against All Things End. Just, you know, certainly not giving away the ending, but just what happens in there, in, in the kind of grand scheme of your work. Well, of course, there are two preceding books, and it's a little difficult to talk about the third book without saying things about the first two books. Uh, much of the action in the first two books was driven by Lyndon Avery's quest to find where the villains have hidden her son and her yearning for some kind of reunion with with Thomas Covenant. Um, Well, the reunion is achieved at the end of the second book, and so this third book, the present book, picks up the quest to recover her adopted son in a much more... uh, active fashion, because uh, until now, she's had no idea where to look. Um, so the story begins with a, uh, a rather frantic uh, search for her son and proceeds from there to deal with the consequences of the fact that she's been reunited with Thomas Covenant. After all, he was dead uh, at the end of the second Chronicles of Thomas Covenant, and his resurrection violates so many natural laws that uh, really the whole world is in trouble because uh, Lyndon and Covenant have been reunited. So this is the third one. Am I right in thinking that there's one more then? Is, the, is that it? You walk away, yes. from, you walk away from it there after that? One, <laughs> there will be one more book. It's called The Last Dark, and that one will complete uh, this story. And have you have you started that, or are you going to give yourself a <laughs> a year off? Or well, there's a way in which uh, it's impossible to start a new book uh, after you finish an old one because the procedural stuff for preparing a book for publication is very time consuming. Um, I have, in effect, two publishers, one in the U.S. and one in the U.K. They both need the manuscript copy edited. They both both need the manuscript proofread. They both need help writing ad copy and promotional copy. They both need uh, information for of various kinds. They have various kinds of book promotions that they want to do, including being able to sell autographed copies. Those books have to be pre-autographed. And the result of all that is that there is very little time to start on a new book until the previous one has physically been published. Once it hits the stores, then I'm free to, to move ahead. But until then, um, they're just – it's always like this. I mean, this is normal for a writer who's having a book published. There's simply an enormous amount of procedural work that has to be done to get the book ready. You know, you, you said being in the business there thirty years. Has has your style of writing changed since you know since you came to the first Thomas Covenant ones? Has it changed the way you're writing now? Well, I like to think so. If I didn't improve over thirty years, I should probably go shoot myself. <laughs> um, 
There are, in order to, like, now you've got me staggering. In an effort to achieve internal consistency over the course of ten covenant books, I have reread the earlier covenant books several times. And they have some strengths that I am very proud of, and they have some weaknesses that I wish I could go back and, uh, and, and revise. There are ways in which I'm a, a smarter writer now than I was then. Um, I'm a less ecstatic writer than I was then. And there were times when, in the, when I was younger, when I seemed to channel writing directly from my unconscious mind. And when that happened, uh, the quality is pretty high. So I'm pleased with the quality of some of my earlier work. Um, on the other hand, I think I'm much better at story design now than I was when I was younger. And I think uh, my stories now are ultimately much more satisfying to read well, Steve, not only have you got your book coming out, but you've also very graciously give Starship Sofa Stories Volume 2 a story to go in there as well, Unworthy of the Angel. Now, according to one website I've been on, wrote in 1983. So are you still dabbling in short stories, or, or was that a long, long time ago? I write short stories in brief bursts, interspersed between big projects, I have a one-track mind, and when I'm working on something like The Last Chronicles, even though it's four books, I really can't think about anything else. So I don't intersperse my my writing efforts on my present project with you know taking a break to write something else. Um, but between big projects, um, it seems. It seems almost heavenly to be able to tackle a story that you can actually finish. You know, I spend, I've been on The Last Chronicles now for nine years. The idea that I could write a story that might only take me nine weeks seems wonderful. So after the strain of a big project, it's, it's very rejuvenating for me to write short stories so I write between two and four short stories between each one of the big projects I've done. The result is that I have not written very many short stories in my life, but the ones that I have written are spread out over a considerable period of time. Is there then, just before we kind of end this little interview, is there any big projects on the horizon for you after you know the, this one you're working on now? Is there something really big that you can see there but you haven't started yet? Uh, no, I've never tried to plan my writing life ahead. I tr try to simply concentrate on what it is I'm doing now. And I wait to see what comes to me when, when I'm done with what I'm doing now. Um, I've, never, throughout, I've never known in advance what big project I was going to tackle next until some time has passed after the last one. 
Well, Stephen, honestly, thank you so much. You know, thank you for coming on and doing the interview and thank you so much for letting the Starship Sofa have that story unworthy of the angel. You know, it's well, it's fun. I'm very happy to do it. Oh, it's fine. We'll certainly send you a copy over once it's it's out in, in print. That's lovely. Thank you. You're very welcome. Take good care. Thank you very much. Take care. There you go. I'll put a link on to Stephen's site. Do pop over there and do check out his new book. Also in, you know, Starship Sofa's Volume 2, we're going to have these extras in the back of the book. And Stephen was very kind to give some pictures of his writing space and something that's really personal to him as well, a little photograph of that. So something to whet your appetite for, Starship Sofa's Volume 2, coming 10-10-2010. Next up is our very own Amy H. Sturgis, Ames. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. Today, I'd like to shine the spotlight on a gentleman who really left his mark on literary history in a variety of ways. We have many reasons to remember him with thanks, but we don't, usually, because he remains in the shadows, particularly in one shadow, the shadow of his father-in-law. George Parsons Lathrop, was born in Honolulu, Hawaii, in August of 1851, and he died in New York in 1898. He was a poet, a nonfiction author, an important editor, a pioneer of copyright law, a Catholic crusader, and, yes, an author of science fiction. But he is perhaps best remembered, or not remembered, as being the son-in-law of Nathaniel Hawthorne. Now, I've talked in past segments about the debt that science fiction owes to the Gothic, and certainly Hawthorne himself was an important writer of Gothic fiction, and he even approached science fiction himself, most notably with his short story, Rappuccini's Daughter. We have the first complete and the standard edition of all of Hawthorne's works, thanks to his son-in-law, George Parsons Lathrop, who edited them. But I'm getting ahead of my story. As I mentioned, Lathrop was born in Honolulu, Hawaii. He was educated in New York and then in Dresden, Germany. When he returned to New York, he decided he wanted to pursue a literary career. His visits took him to England and there he met and married Rose Hawthorne, the daughter of Nathaniel Hawthorne, when he was 20 in 1871. Four years later, he became the associate editor of the Atlantic Monthly, and he stayed there for two years at this important publication, and eventually then left it to work in newspaper editing in Boston and then in New York. During this time, he also wrote and published a number of books, and what's really interesting about his work is how varied it was. He produced works of poetry, such as Rose and Rose Tree in 1875 and Dreams and Days in 1892. He wrote novels such as Afterglow in 1876 and Newport in 1884. He wrote non-fiction works, such as Spanish Vistas in 1883, which was a travel narrative, 
and A Story of Courage in 1894, which was a history of the Visitation Convent in Georgetown. Literary historians probably know him best for one of three accomplishments. First, he wrote A Study of Hawthorne in 1876, which he said wasn't a biography, more like a portrait. And of course, at that time, he had been Hawthorne's son-in-law for five years. So he had unique access and insights into the man as well as the writer. He also edited the complete and standard edition of Hawthorne's works in 1883. Also, in 1883, he founded the American Copyright League. This organization ultimately secured the international copyright law. So, already, as you can tell, his literary accomplishments, not too shabby. Together, George and Rose chose to change their lives in quite a dramatic way when they converted to Catholicism. They were formally accepted into the Roman Catholic Church in 1891 in New York. And Lathrop went on to found the Catholic Summer School of America, for which he is remembered as an important contributor to U.S. Catholicism. Sadly, even their joint conversion could not keep George and Rose together. In 1895, 24 years after their marriage, they separated. They never divorced, but they lived apart. After he died, Rose became Mother M. Alfonso and organized a community of Dominican nuns, the Servants of Relief for Incurable Cancer Patients, who then took charge of and ran two different cancer-specific hospitals in New York. Even their separation, however, did not keep George from contributing to and preserving the legacy of Nathaniel Hawthorne. He adapted Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter for an opera of that title, which was later produced in New York in 1896. At this point, you may be saying, fine and dandy, George Parsons Lathrop, yes, son-in-law to Nathaniel Hawthorne, check, thanks for sharing. But what does this have to do with science fiction? Well, I'm glad you ask, because there are two really interesting things about Lathrop that I'd like to point out in terms of the history of the genre. The first is that Lathrop was very interested in, among many other things, of course, science. And he had the ability to be the middleman between the scientist and the popular readers of the public press. In other words, he could make cutting-edge science accessible to the mainstream reader. When you think about the years of his tragically short life, he was living during a time of remarkable scientific achievement, 1851 to 1898. Perhaps Lathrop's most important achievement in this vein was a long interview that he held with noted inventor Thomas Edison. He published it as Talks with Edison in the popular Harper's Magazine in February 1890, thus helping to communicate some of Edison's breakthroughs and conjectures and predictions, and really package that in a way for a popular mainstream audience. 
The ideas Edison shared really lit a fire in Lathrop, and he ended up taking these ideas and turning them into a classic science fiction story. This is how Lathrop himself described it: Quote, "This story is the result of conversations with Thomas A. Edison, the substance of which he afterwards put into the form of notes written for my use." His suggestions as to inventions and changed mechanical, industrial, and social conditions in the future, here embodied, I understand to be simply hints as to what might possibly be accomplished. The story he wrote was "In the Deep of Time," and it ran in the English Illustrated Magazine in 1897. There's a good chance that H.G. Wells was reading English Illustrated magazine in 1897. After all, this was a publication that published some of Wells' works, and it's important to note that *In the Deep of Time* came out two years before H.G. Wells' *When the Sleeper Wakes*. In Lathrop's story, a young man who has just broken up with his girlfriend—it's perhaps important to note that this work came out. Only two years after Lathrop and his wife separated, volunteers to be the subject of a scientific test, and that test is to be put in suspended animation for three hundred years, and then hopefully waken to see what the world of the future is like. This young protagonist, Gerald Bemis, is in fact preserved for three centuries, but the day that he's awakened. Which should be obviously an important historic moment, turns out to be rather anticlimactic because it just so happens to be the day that the Martians make contact with Earth and agree to send an emissary. Needless to say, an old human waking up doesn't really compete with news that the Martians are coming. Oh, and as if Gerald's poor mind isn't sufficiently blown by news about the Martians, it turns out that his girlfriend, who dumped him, felt so badly about things that she too opted for suspended animation, being the second test subject. She's awakened as well, and you know her feelings really have changed in those intervening three hundred years. Can anyone say wish fulfillment? So you have a strange romantic situation, sort of evolves into a love triangle, but at the same time you have a fascinating first contact sequence, and the reader gets the benefit of seeing the world of the future through multiple sets of fresh eyes: Gerald's, his former girlfriend's, and the Martian's. This story is jam-packed with intriguing science fiction content, from the suspended animation process itself, known as vivification, to completely automated human-free factories, to the classic, at that time not so classic, trope of anti-gravity. Scientific progress is controlled by a mysterious secret cabal known as the Society of Futurity. The enlightened World Committee of Twenty runs a unified planet-wide government. I won't go into all of the fascinating scientific ideas, from the ability to regenerate human teeth 
to the ability to create prefabricated mansions for even the most humble worker. What's especially noteworthy, I think, are the societal developments. It's interesting that Gerald feels himself to be almost as alien to this future world as Zorlin the Martian. In fact, both Gerald and his ex, who becomes once again his girlfriend, and later his wife, actually leave Earth altogether and live on Mars for a while, because this, in a way, is easier to handle than the world of the future. Check out Lathrop's description in a social science fiction sense. They, and here he's talking about two of the inhabitants of the future, they were both children of the state, as all persons of unusual physical and mental endowments were permitted to become at the age of 40, after passing through examinations and inspection and having their internal condition carefully ascertained by x-rays, they were then suitably mated in marriage to someone of equal standard, with a view to perpetuating and increasing the best elements of the race. All degenerates were kept in asylums, called museums, where they were permitted to have their own literature, music, and amusements under state supervision with an attempted gradual reformation, and were not permitted to marry. So, too, criminals were segregated in special districts, the men and the women apart, and were not allowed to marry. In short, were eliminated from the human family and prevented from menacing posterity, all without cruelty or capital punishment. Now, don't get me wrong, Lathrop isn't seeing this as a dystopian future. He's pretty comfortable with most of the things he sees and extremely pleased by others. The hero is just a bit inconvenienced by the fact he's seen as one of those degenerates instead of one of those children of the state. And so he has to get off-world in order to, well, mate, if you follow my meaning. Because those ladies of the future aren't having any of his 300-year-old stuff. The Martians are consistently portrayed as being vastly superior to humans in just about every way, down to the point that they reproduce through a beautiful and selfless act of will. In other words, when they are sufficiently enlightened, they can pretty much think their progeny into being. Lathrop's work is also visionary because it's really character-driven science fiction. His protagonist, Gerald, literally has to travel 300 years into the future and to another planet in order to figure out his own heart and mind. As an historical work, it's fascinating, but as science fiction, it's downright good to this day. And I find it all the more interesting because we can clearly draw a line of cause and effect from his interviews with Thomas Edison to his embodiment of these scientific ideas in his fiction. We know what inspired him and why. And so, please, remember George Parsons Lathrop as more than just Nathaniel Hawthorne's son-in-law. Many of his works are available online at Project Gutenberg, and his story in the deep of time, his science fiction classic, is available most recently in the 2010 anthology Steampunk Prime, a vintage steampunk reader, edited by Mike Ashley. I hope you've enjoyed this look back into genre history, and I look forward to joining you again soon with another look 
back into the past of science fiction. Thank you. There you go, Aim. Thank you so much. Next up is Main Fiction, and it is Ben Bova with a story entitled The Man Who Hated Gravity. There's lots going on over at Mr. Bova's site. He has a new techno thriller out, Able One, and he's also got a historical novel about Helen of Troy and the Trojan War called The Hittite. Tor has also published The Return, tying together the backgrounds of the Grand Tour series and his earlier Voyager trilogy. And his Voyager trilogy is also getting reissued as well, so I'll put a link on to Ben's site, do pop over there. And like I say, this story is narrated by our very own Fred Heimbar. Fred. So the Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present The Man Who Hated Gravity by Ben Bova. Introduction to The Man Who Hated Gravity The most important advice ever given to a writer is this. Write about what you know. How can you do this in science fiction when the stories tend to be about places and times that no one has yet experienced? How can you write about what you know when you want to write about living in the future or the distant past, on the moon or Mars or some planet that is invented out of your imagination? There are ways. To begin with, no matter what time and place your story is set, it must deal with people. Oh, sure, the characters in your story may not look like human beings. Science fiction characters can be robots, or alien creatures, or smart dolphins, or sentient cacti, for that matter. But they must behave like humans. They must have humanly recognizable needs and fears and desires. If they do not, they will either be totally incomprehensible to the reader, or, worst sin of all, boring. I have never been to the moon. I have never been a circus acrobat. But I know what it is like to hate gravity. Several years ago, I popped my knee while playing tennis. For weeks, I was in a brace, hardly able to walk. I used crutches and later a cane. For more than a year, I could not trust my two legs to support me. Even today, that knee feels like a loose collection of rubber bands inside. I know what it is like to be crippled, even though it was only temporary. And I know, perhaps as well as anyone, what it is like to live on the moon. I've been living there in my imagination for much of my life. My first novel, unpublished, dealt with establishing habitats on the moon. My 1976 novel, Millennium, later incorporated into the Kinsman Saga, was set mainly on the moon. In my 1987 nonfiction book, Welcome to Moonbase, I worked with engineers and illustrators to create a livable, workable industrial base on the moon's surface. While I was hobbling around on crutches, hating every moment of being incapacitated, I kept thinking of how much better off I would be in zero-g, or in the gentle gravity of the moon, one-sixth of the Earth's. And the great Rolando took form in my mind. I began to write a short story about him. I don't write many short stories. Most of my fiction has been novels. When I start a novel, usually I know the major characteristics of the major characters, and that's about it. 
I have sketched out the basic conflict between the protagonist and the antagonist, but if I try to outline the scenes, schedule the chapters, organize the action, the novel gets turgid and dull. Much better to let the characters fight it out among themselves day after day as the work progresses. Short stories are very different. Most of the short stories I write are rather carefully planned out before I begin putting the words down. I find that because a short story must necessarily be tightly written without a spare scene or even an extra sentence, I must work out every detail of the story in my mind before I begin to write. The man who hated gravity did not evolve that way. I began with Rolando, a daring acrobat, who flouted his disdain for the dangers of his work. I knew he was going to be injured much more seriously and permanently than I was. From there on in, Rolando and the other characters literally took over the telling of the tale. I did not know, for example, that the scientist who was used to help publicize Rolando would turn out to be the man who headed Moonbase years later. I do not advise this subconscious method of writing for short story work. As I said, a short story must be succinct. Instead of relating the tale of a person's whole life or a substantial portion of it, a short story can, at best, reveal a critical incident in that character's life. A turning point, an episode that illuminates the person's inner being. But it worked for me in The Man Who Hated Gravity. See if the story works for you. The Man Who Hated Gravity by Ben Bova The great Rolando had not always hated gravity. As a child growing up in the traveling circus that had been his only home, he often frightened his parents by climbing too high, swinging too far, daring more than they could bear to watch. The son of a clown and a cook, Rolando had yearned for true greatness and could not rest until he became the most renowned aerialist of them all. Slim and handsome in his spangled tights, Rolando soared through the empty air, thirty feet above the circus's flimsy safety net, then fifty feet above it, then a full hundred feet high, with no net at all. "'See the great Rolando defy gravity!' shouted the posters and TV advertisements. And the people came to crane their necks and hold their breaths as he performed a split-second ballet in mid-air high above them. Literally flying from one trapeze to another, triple somersaults were workaday chores for the great Rolando. His father feared to watch his son's performances. With all the superstition born of generations of circus life, he cringed outside the big top while the crowds roared deliriously. Behind his clown's painted grin, Rolando's father trembled. His mother prayed through every performance until the day she died, slumped over a bare wooden pew in a tiny austere church far out in the Midwestern prairie. For no matter how far he flew, no matter how wildly he gyrated in midair, no matter how the crowds below gasped and screamed their delight, the great Rolando pushed himself farther, higher, more recklessly. 
Once, when the circus was playing near New York City's huge convention center, the management pulled a public relations coup. They got a brilliant young physicist from Columbia University to pose with Rolando for the media cameras and congratulate him on defying gravity. Once the camera crews had departed, the physicist said to Rolando, I've always had a secret yearning to be in the circus. I admire what you do very much. Rolando accepted the compliment with a condescending smile. But no one can really defy gravity, the physicist warned. It's a universal force, you know. The great Rolando's smile vanished. I can defy gravity, and I do, every day. Several years later, Rolando's father died of a heart seizure during one of his son's performances, and Rolando married the brilliant young lion tamer who had joined the circus slightly earlier. She was a petite little thing with golden hair, the loveliest of blue eyes, and so sweet a disposition that no one could say anything about her that was less than praise. Even the great cats purred for her. She too feared Rolando's ever bolder daring, his wilder and wilder reachings on the high trapeze. There's nothing to be afraid of. Gravity can't hurt me. And he would laugh at her fears. But I am afraid, she would cry. The people pay their money to see me defy gravity, Rolando would tell his tearful wife. They'll get bored if I keep doing the same stunts one year after another. She loved him dearly and felt terribly frightened for him. It was one thing to master a large cage full of Bengal tigers and tawny lions and snarling black panthers. All you needed was will and nerve. But she knew that the gravity was another matter altogether. No one can defy gravity forever, she would say gently, softly, quietly. I can, boasted the great Rolando. But of course he could not. No one could, not forever. The fall, when it inevitably came, was a matter of a fraction of a second. His young assistant's hand slipped only slightly in starting out the empty trapeze for Rolando to catch after a quadruple somersault. Rolando almost caught it. In midair, he saw that the bar would be too short. He stretched his significantly trained body to the utmost, and his fingers just grazed its tape-wound shaft. For an instant he hung in the air. The tent went absolutely silent. The crowd drew in its collective breath. The band stopped playing. Then gravity wrapped its invisible tentacles around the great Rolando, and he plummeted, wild-eyed and screaming, to the sawdust a hundred feet below. His right leg is completely shattered, said the famous surgeon to his wife. She had stayed calm up to that moment, strong and level-headed, while her husband lay unconscious in an intensive care unit. His other injuries will heal, but the leg... The gray-haired, gray-suited man shook his dignified head sadly. His assistants, gathered behind him like an honor guard, shook their heads in metronome synchrony to their leader. His leg? she asked, trembling. 
he will never be able to walk again, the famous surgeon pronounced. The petite blonde lion tamer crumpled and sagged into a sleek leather couch of the hospital waiting room, tears spilling down her cheeks. Unless, said the famous surgeon. Unless, she echoed, suddenly wild with hope. Unless we replace the shattered leg with a prosthesis. Cut off his leg? The famous surgeon promised her that a prosthetic bionic leg would be just as good as the original. In fact, even better. It would be a permanent prosthesis. It would never have to come off. And its synthetic surface would blend so well with Rolando's real skin that no one would be able to tell where his natural leg ended and his prosthetic leg began. His assistants nodded in unison. Frenzied at the thought that her husband would never walk again, alone in the face of coolly assured medical wisdom, she reluctantly gave her assent and signed the necessary papers. The artificial leg was part lightweight metal, part composite paste-manufactured materials, and entirely filled with marvelously tiny electronic devices and miraculously miniaturized motors that moved the prosthesis exactly the way a real leg should move. It was stronger than flesh and bone, or so the doctors confidently assured the great Rolando and his wife. The circus manager, a constantly frowning bald man who reported to a board of bankers, lawyers, and MBAs in St. Petersburg, agreed to pay the famous surgeon's astronomical fee. The first aerialist with a bionic leg, he murmured, dollar signs in his eyes. Rolando took the news of the amputation and prosthesis with surprising calm. He agreed with his wife, better a strong and reliable artificial leg than a ruined real one. In two weeks he walked again, but not well. He limped. The leg hurt with a sullen, stubborn ache that refused to go away. It will take a little time to get accustomed to it, said the physical therapists. Rolando waited. He exercised. He tried jogging. The leg did not work right, and it ached constantly. That's just not possible, the doctors assured him. Perhaps you ought to talk with a psychologist. The great Rolando stormed out of their offices, limping and cursing, never to return. He went back to the circus, but not to his aerial acrobatics. A man who could not walk properly, who had an artificial leg that did not work right, had no business on the high trapeze. His young assistant took the spotlight now, and duplicated, almost, the great Rolando's repertoire of aerial acrobatic feats. Rolando watched him with mounting jealousy, his only satisfaction being that the crowds were noticeably smaller than they had been when he had been the star of the show. The circus manager frowned and asked Rolando when he would be ready to work again. When the leg works right, said Rolando. But it continued to pain him, to make him awkward and invalid. That is when he began to hate gravity. He hated being pinned down to the ground like a worm, a beetle. He would hobble into the big tent and eye the flyer's platform a hundred feet over his head, 
and know that he could not even climb the ladder to reach it. He grew angrier each day, and clumsy, and obese. The damned false leg hurt, no matter what those expensive quacks said. It was not psychosomatic. Rolando snorted contempt for their stupidity. He spent his days bumping into inanimate objects and tripping over tent ropes. He spent his nights grumbling and grousing, fearing to move about in the dark, fearing even that he might roll off his bed. When he managed to sleep, the same nightmare gripped him. He was falling, plunging downward eternally, while gravity laughed at him, and all his screams for help did him no good whatever. His former assistant grinned at him whenever they met. The circus manager took to growling about Rolando's weight and asking how long he expected to be on the payroll when he was not earning his keep. Rolando limped and ached, and when no one could see him, he cried. He grew bitter and angry, like a proud lion that finds itself caged forever. Representatives from the bionics company that manufactured the prosthetic leg visited the circus, their faces grave with concern. The prosthesis should be working just fine, they insisted. Rolando insisted even more staunchly that their claims were fraudulent. I should sue you and the barbarian who took my leg off. The manufacturer's reps consulted their home office, and within a week, Rolando was whisked to San Jose in their company jet. For days on end, they tested the leg, its electronic innards, the bionic interface, where it linked with Rolando's human nervous system. Everything checked out perfectly. They showed Rolando the results, almost with tears in their eyes. It should work fine. It does not. In exchange for a written agreement not to sue them, the bionics company gave Rolando a position as a field consultant at a healthy stipend. His only duties were to phone San Jose once a month to report on how the leg felt. Rolando delighted in describing each and every individual twinge, the awkwardness of the leg, and how it made him limp. His wife was the major earner now, despite his monthly consultant's fee. She worked twice as hard as ever before, and began to draw crowds that held their breaths in vicarious terror as they watched the tiny blonde place herself at the mercy of so many fangs and claws. Rolando traveled with her as the circus made its tour of North America each year, growing fatter and unhappier day by humiliating, frustrating, painful day. Gravity defeated him every hour in a thousand small ways. He would read a magazine in their cramped mobile home until, bored, he tossed it on the table. Gravity would slyly tug at its pages until the magazine slipped over the table's edge and fell to the floor. He would shower laboriously, hating the bulging fat that now encumbered his once-sleek body. The soap would slide from his hands while he was half-blinded with suds. Inevitably, he would slip on it and bang himself painfully against the shower wall. If there was a carpet spread on the floor, gravity would contrive to have it entangle his feet and pull him into a humiliating fall. Stairs tripped him. His silverware clattered noisily to the floor in restaurants. 
He shunned the big top altogether, where the people who once paid to see him soar through the air could see how heavy and clumsy he had become. Even though a nasty voice in his mind told him that no one would recognize the fat old man he now was as the once magnificent great Rolando. As the years stretched past, Rolando grew grayer and heavier and angrier, furious at gravity, bellowing, screaming, howling with impotent rage at the hateful tricks gravity played on him every day, every hour. He took to leaning on a cane and stumping around their mobile home, roaring helplessly against gravity and the fate that was killing him by inches. His darling wife remained steadfast and supportive all through those terrible years. Other circus folk shook their heads in wonder at her. She spends all day with the big cats and then goes home to more roaring and spitting, they told each other. Then, one winter afternoon, as the sun threw long shadows across the Houston Astrodome parking lot, where the circus was camped for the week, Rolando's wife came into their mobile home, her sky-blue workout suit dark with perspiration, and announced that a small contingent of performers had been invited to Moon Base for a month. To the moon? Rolando asked, incredulous. Who? The flyers and tightrope acts, she replied, and a selection of acrobats and clowns. There's no gravity up there, Rolando muttered, suddenly jealous. Or less gravity, something like that. He slumped back into the sofa without realizing that the wonderful smile on his wife's face meant that there was more she wanted to tell him. We've been invited, too, she blurted, and she perched herself on his lap, threw her arms around his thick neck, and kissed him soundly. You mean you've been invited, he said darkly, pulling away from her embrace. You're the star of the show. I'm a has-been. She shook her head, still smiling happily. They haven't asked me to perform. They can't bring the cats up into space. The invitation is for the great Rolando and his wife to spend a month up there as guests of Moonbase Incorporated. Rolando suspected that the Bionics Company had pulled some corporate strings. They wanted to see how their damnable leg works without gravity, he was certain. Inwardly, he was eager to find out, too. But he let no one know that, not even his wife. To her utter shame and dismay, Rolando was miserably sick all the long three days of the flight from Texas to Moonbase. Immediately after takeoff, the spacecraft carrying the circus performers was in zero gravity, weightless, and Rolando found that the absence of gravity was worse for him than the gravity itself. His stomach seemed to be falling all the time, while, paradoxically, anything he tried to eat crawled upward into his throat and made him violently ill. In his misery and near delirium, he knew that gravity was laughing at him. Once on the moon, however, everything became quite fine. Better than fine, as far as Rolando was concerned. While clear-eyed young moon-based guides in crisp uniforms of amber and bronze, demonstrated the cautious, shuffling walk that was needed in the gentle lunar gravity, Rolando realized that his leg no longer hurt. "'I feel fine,' he whispered to his wife in the middle of the demonstration. 
Then he startled the guides and his fellow circus folk alike by tossing his cane aside and leaping five meters into the air, shouting at the top of his lungs, I feel wonderful! The circus performers were taken off to special orientation lectures, but Rolando and his wife were escorted by a pert young redhead into the office of Moonbase's chief administrator. Remember me? asked the administrator as he shook Rolando's hand and half bowed to his wife. I was the physicist at Columbia who did the TV commercial with you six or seven years ago. Rolando did not, in fact, remember the man's face at all, although he did recall his warning about gravity. As he sat down in the chair, the administrator proffered. He frowned slightly. The administrator wore zippered coveralls of powder blue. He hiked one hip onto the edge of his desk and beamed happily at the Rolandos. "'I can't tell you how delighted I am to have the circus here, even if it's just for a month.' I really had to sweat blood to get the corporation's management to okay bringing you up here. Transportation's still quite expensive, you know. Rolando patted his artificial leg. I imagine the bionics company paid their fair share of the costs. The administrator looked slightly startled. Well, yes, they have picked up the tab for you and Mrs. Rolando. I thought so. Rolando's wife smiled sweetly. We are delighted that you invited us here. They chatted a while longer, and then the administrator personally escorted them to their apartment in Moonbase's tourist section. Have a happy stay, he said, by way of taking his leave. Although he did not expect to, that is exactly what Rolando did for the next many days. Moonbase was marvelous. There was enough gravity to keep his insides behaving properly, but it was so light and gentle that even his obese body with its false leg felt young and agile again. Rolando walked the length and breadth of the great main plaza, his wife clinging to his arm, and marveled at how the moon-base people had landscaped the expanse under their dome, planted it with grass and flowering shrubs. The apartment they had been assigned to was deeper underground, in one of the long corridors that had been blasted out of solid rock. But the quarters were no smaller than their mobile home back on Earth, and it had a video screen that took up one entire wall of the sitting room. I love it here, Rolando told his wife. I could stay forever. It's only for one month, she said softly. Rolando ignored it. Rolando adjusted quickly to walking in the easy lunar gravity, never noticing that his wife adjusted just as quickly, perhaps even a shade faster. He left his cane in their apartment, and they strolled unaided each day through the shopping arcades and athletic fields of the main plaza, walking for hours on end without a bit of pain. He watched the roustabouts that had come up with him directing their robots to set up a big top in the middle of the plaza, a gaudy blaze of colorful plastic and pennants beneath the great gray dome that soared high overhead. The moon is marvelous, thought Rolando. There was still gravity lurking, trying to trip him up and make him look ridiculous, but even when he fell it was so slow and gentle that he could put out his powerful arms and push himself up to a standing position before his body actually hit the ground. I love it here, he said to his wife, dozens of times each day. She smiled and tried to remind him that it was only for three more weeks. At dinner one evening in Moonbase's grander restaurant, there were only two, not counting cafeterias, his earthly muscles proved too strong for the moon when he rammed their half-finished bottle of wine back into its aluminum ice bucket. The bucket tipped and fell off the edge of the table. 
But Rolando snatched it with one hand in the midst of its languid fall toward the floor, and with a smile and a flourish deposited the bucket with the bottle still in it back on the table before a drop had spilled. I love it here, he repeated for the fortieth time that day. Gradually, though, his euphoric mood sank. The circus began giving abbreviated performances inside the big top, and Rolando stood helplessly pinned to the ground while the spotlights picked out the young flyers in their skin-tight costumes as they tumbled slowly, dreamily through the air between one trapeze and the next, twisting, tumbling, soaring in the soft lunar gravity in ways that no one had ever done before. The audience gasped and cheered and gave them standing ovations. Rolando stood rooted near one of the tent's entrances, deep in shadow, wearing a tourist's pale green coveralls, choking with envy and frustrated rage. The crowds were small. There were only a few thousand people living at the moon base, plus perhaps another thousand tourists, but they shook the plastic tent with their roars of delight. Rolando watched a few performances, then stayed away. But he noticed at the Olympic-sized pool that raw teenagers were diving from a 30-meter platform and doing half a dozen somersaults as they fell languidly in the easy gravity. Even when they hit the water, the splashes they made rose lazily and then fell back into the pool so leisurely that it seemed like a slow-motion film. Anyone can be an athlete here, Rolando realized as he watched tourists flying on rented wings through the upper reaches of the main plaza's vaulted dome. Children could easily do not merely Olympic, but Olympian feats of acrobatics. Rolando began to dread the possibility of seeing a youngster do a quadruple somersault from a standing start. Anyone can defy gravity here, he complained to his wife, silently adding, Anyone but me. It made him morose to realize that feats which had taken him a lifetime to accomplish could be learned by a toddler in half an hour, and soon he would have to return to Earth with its heavy, oppressive, mocking gravity. I know you're waiting for me, he said to gravity. You're going to kill me if I don't do the job for myself first. Two nights before they were due to depart, they were the dinner guests of the chief administrator and several of his staff. As formal an occasion as Moonbase ever has, the men wore sports jackets and turtleneck shirts, the women real dresses and jewelry. The administrator told hoary old stories of his childhood yearning to be in the circus. Rolando remained modestly silent, even when the administrator spoke glowingly of how he had admired the daring feats of the great Rolando many years ago. After dinner, back in their apartment, Rolando turned on his wife. You got them to invite us up here, didn't you? She admitted. The bionics company told me that they were going to end your consulting fee. They want to give up on you. I asked them to let us come here and see if your leg would be better in low gravity. And then we go back to Earth. Yes. Back to real gravity. Back to my being a cripple. I was hoping... Her voice broke, and she sank onto the bed, crying. Suddenly, Rolando's anger was overwhelmed by a searing, agonizing sense of shame. All these years, she had been trying so hard, standing between him and the rest of the world, protecting him, sheltering him. And for what? So that he could scream at her for the rest of his life? He could not bear it any longer. 
Unable to speak, unable even to reach his hand out to comfort her, he turned and lumbered out of the apartment, leaving his wife weeping alone. He knew where he had to be, where he could finally put an end to this humiliation and misery. He made his way to the big top. A stubby, gunmetal gray robot stood guard at the main entrance, its sensors focusing on Rolando like the red glowing eyes of a spider. No access at this time except to members of the circus troupe, it said in its synthesized voice. I am the great Rolando. One moment for voice print identification, said the robot. Then, approved. Rolando swept past the contraption with a snort of contempt. The big top was empty at this hour. Tomorrow they would start to dismantle it. The next day they would head back to Earth. Rolando walked slowly, stiffly, to the base of the ladder that reached up to the trapezes. The spotlights were shut down. The only illumination inside the tent came from the harsh working lights spotted here and there. Rolando heaved a deep breath and stripped off his jacket. Then, gripping one of the ladder's rungs, he began to climb, Good leg first, then the artificial leg. He could feel no difference between them. His body was only one-sixth its earthly weight, of course, but still the artificial leg behaved exactly as his normal one. He reached the topmost platform. Holding tightly to the side rail, he peered down into the gloomy shadows a hundred feet below. With a slow, ponderous nod of his head, the great Rolando finally admitted what he had kept buried inside him all these long, anguished years. Finally, the concealed truth emerged and stood naked before him. With tear-filled eyes, he saw its reality. He had been living a lie for all these years. He had been blaming gravity for his own failure. Now he understood with precise, final clarity that it was not gravity that had destroyed his life. It was fear. He stood rooted on the high platform, trembling with the memory of falling, plunging, screaming terror. He knew that this fear would live within him always, for the remainder of his life. It was too strong to overcome. He was a coward, probably had always been a coward, all his life, all his life. Without consciously thinking about it, Rolando untied one of the trapezes and gripped the rough surface of its taped bar. He did not bother with resin. There would be no need. As if in a dream, he swung out into the empty air, feeling the rush of wind ruffling his gray hair, hearing the creep of the ropes beneath his weight. Once, twice, three times swung back and forth, kicking higher each time. He grunted with the unaccustomed exertion. He felt sweat trickling from his armpits. Looking down, he saw the hard ground so far below. One more fall, he told himself. Just let go, and that will end it forever. End the fear. End the shame. Teach me. The voice boomed like cannon fire across the empty tent. Rolando felt every muscle in his body tighten. On the opposite platform, before him, stood the chief administrator, still wearing his dinner jacket. Teach me, he called again. Show me how to do it, just this once before you have to leave. Rolando hung by his hands, swinging back and forth. 
The younger man's figure standing on the platform came closer, closer, then receded, dwindled as inertia carried Rolando forward and back, forward and back. No one will know, the administrator pleaded through the shadows. I promise you, I'll never tell a soul. Just show me how to do it, just this once. Stand back, Rolando heard his own voice call. It startled him. Rolando kicked once, tried to judge the distance and account for the lower gravity as best he could, and let go of the bar. He soared too far, but the strong composite mesh at the rear of the platform caught him, yieldingly, and he was able to grasp the side railing and stand erect before the young administrator could reach out and steady him. "'We both have a lot to learn,' said the great Rolando. "'Take off your jacket.' For more than an hour, the two men swung high through the silent, shadowy air. Rolando tried nothing fancy, no leaps from one bar to another, no real acrobatics. It was tricky enough just landing gracefully on the platform in the strange lunar gravity. The administrator did exactly as Rolando instructed him. For all his youth and desire to emulate the circus star, he was no daredevil. It satisfied him completely to swing side by side with the great Rolando, to share the same platform. "'What made you come here tonight?' Rolando asked as they stood gasping sweatily on the platform between turns. "'The security robot reported your entry. Strictly routine. I get all such reports piped to my quarters. But I figured this was too good a chance to miss.' Finally, soaked with perspiration, arms aching and fingers raw and cramping, they made their way down the ladder to the ground, laughing. I'll never forget this, the administrator said. It's the high point of my life. Mine too, said Rolando fervently. Mine too. Two days later, the administrator came to the rocket terminal to see off the circus troupe. Taking Rolando and his wife to one side, he said in a low voice that brimmed with happiness, You know, we're starting to accept retired couples for permanent residence here at Moonbase. Rolando's wife immediately responded, Oh, I'm not ready to retire yet. Nor I, said Rolando. I'll stay with the circus for a few years more, I think. There might still be time for me to make a comeback. Still, said the administrator, when you do want to retire... Mrs. Rolando smiled at him. I've noticed that my face looks better in this lower gravity. I probably wouldn't need a facelift if we came to live here. They laughed together. The rest of the troop was filling into the rocket that would take them back to Earth. Rolando gallantly held his wife's arm as she stepped up the ramp and ducked through the hatch. Then he turned to the administrator and asked swiftly, "'What you told me about gravity all those years ago, is it really true? Is it really universal? There's no way around it?' "'Afraid not.' One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The administrator answered, Someday gravity will make the sun collapse. It might even make the entire universe collapse. Rolando nodded, shook the man's hand, then followed his wife to a seat inside the rocket's passenger compartment. As he listened to the taped safety lecture and strapped on his safety belt, he thought to himself, So, gravity will get us all in the end. Then he smiled grimly. But not yet. Not yet. There you go. Thank you, Mr. Ben Bova, sir. Much appreciated. And Fred Heimbaugh. Fred, thank you so much. Links on to Fred and Ben's site. Next up is a fact article by Randall L. Swartz. Randall, as you know, did a great narration the other week and is the host, the man, the main man behind Floss Weekly over there at the Twit Network. When all Worldcon was kicking off, Randall was going to DragonCon, which is it sounds like it was even bigger and better and more exciting. Randall, was that the case? Hey, Tony, this is Randall Schwartz. You asked me to file a report on DragonCon while I was there, but I think you'll see in a few minutes why I couldn't do it. I had absolutely no time to do anything that wasn't already more than I could handle there at DragonCon. First off, though, I've got to say congratulations on the Hugo. That is so amazing. I remember you being really pleased and surprised when you were just nominated, but to actually win, congrats, sir. You deserve it very much so. So just a little overview for those who haven't been. DragonCon is about 50,000 people that are all converging in downtown Atlanta, the three biggest hotels in downtown Atlanta, uh, for a four- or five-day weekend, uh, depending on uh, how you count that. It's a really crazy place. I've been there nine years in a row now as a guest. So I don't go as an attendee. I go as a guest. I'll get into that in a second. Um, The crazy stuff, though, is how I have to get there. I'm a West Coast guy mostly, so getting all the way over to Atlanta requires a lot of planning, and I generally don't want to waste an extra hotel night. So this time I happened to be in L.A. I had to wake up at 3 a.m. just to get to the airport in time, the L.A. airport in time, so I could get the flight over to Atlanta and get there by 4.30 in the afternoon on Thursday. Of course, it's crazy getting from there to the hotel, and we get to the hotel, and uh, my friend Jedi Jenny, she reserves the room a year in advance because these hotel rooms sell really 
really fast. We we get a spot in one of the three uh, main hotels. Uh, and of course, checking in is always crazy. As a guest, I get a privilege because. There's a really, really short VIP check-in line. It's usually about three people ahead of me as I walk up. If you pre-register as a normal attendee, the line I heard this year was up to four or five hours standing out in the 90-degree temperature uh, Atlanta uh, downtown uh, sidewalks. Oh, man. And this year there was a little bit of a faux pas because the non-pre-registered line was only something like 20 or 30 minutes and you have to pay an extra 10 bucks to register on site but people were really angry that they you know they pre-registered like they're supposed to they end up standing in a four-hour line where people that just sort of showed up on site could pay 10 bucks extra 15 bucks extra something like that and only go like 30 minutes and it was all inside so uh i know that's going to mean a lot of people next year are basically just going to skip the pre-reg and go to the other line but all that's going to do is make it worse the other direction so i don't know if there's any solution of that just crazy stuff uh, another part of dragon con of course is people watching there everybody dresses up well not everybody well i dressed up as a hacker i guess i sort of look like my normal self uh easy clothes because i already have those not really much of a costume but uh i tell you there is everything under the sun there are some giant costumes that are 15 feet tall i don't know how these people manipulate them i see people on stilts i see people wearing next to nothing that seems to be one of the most popular things uh for both thin and fat women unfortunately uh look uh you know, i'll just stop there um, lots of people posing. That's and there's actually rules about where you can pose and where you can't because if you pose too much, you'll end up in the wrong place. Crazy stuff. Um, uh, my friend, as I said, Jedi Jenny, she is really into costumes. Uh, she uh, typically brings 15 or 16 costumes to Dragon Con. She changes like four or five times a day. Huge buckets of stuff. You, you know, just to just to be able to have all these great costumes. Uh, she only brought like five this year. Apparently, it was, uh, she's been moving and a lot of uh, stuff to take care of at home. So it's been a little bit slower, but still had five. That was pretty cool. Uh, one of their costumes she brought was Selena from Underworld, the uh, the vampire girl. And uh, she actually, uh, Jedi Jenny actually gave blood dressed up in the Selena outfit. It was outrageous. She's got teeth that can actually poke uh, holes in beer cans. And she has these contacts. She has the whole gun. She has everything for it. And she, I've got a picture of her uh, on my blog at uh, merlin.posterous.com where you can actually see her uh, dressed up as Selena um, uh, giving blood, giving blood for real, real fun. Another activity there is the Walk of Fame, all these famous actors and uh, actresses uh, from various uh, science fiction fantasy things, uh, writers, everything are all on this arranged in this area where you can uh, pay, you know, 10, 20, 30 bucks for uh, various uh, signatures, autographs. I think that the saddest part about that is, is seeing that, you know, the, the, the currently popular people have these lines that are something like half hour to an hour long and everybody else it's it's like there's people you can just walk right up to and chat with, you know, because they're not current. And it's sad to kind of see them side by side. You know, it's like I wouldn't, you know, well, I end up like this someday. I guess some of these actors are thinking, but it's crazy there. There's also dealer rooms, exhibitor rooms, um, people selling stuff, uh, people that are recycling stuff, people that, uh, you know, are basically buy and sell used materials versus uh, new materials. But that you can spend probably an hour walking through and not see everything, maybe an hour and a half, two hours. 
I typically make a quick run through as fast as I can, but of course it's usually pretty busy and full. People stop to look at things. This year I had an unusual task in that my brother spends a lot of time on Second Life, and it turns out that one of the dealers was also one of his Second Life buddies, so I got to see them in real life before he ever has. I got to get a photograph of them, too, so now he knows what his Second Life correspondence actually look like in real life, which I thought was sort of fun. Uh, the biggest thing for me, though, and probably the thing that sort of justifies the time for me, is that I get to hang out a lot in the green room. That's a special resume, reserve for people who are guests, people who are speakers, or special guests, things like that. There's only about 400 of them out of the uh, entire uh, 40,000, 50,000 people attending. So I have this special guest badge that I wear, and it gets me into the green room. The green room has uh, often has some B-list people there. So maybe not the top stars, but maybe secondary stars. But I've chatted with some pretty major people up there. I've, yeah, I won't name any names because they're... Uh, you know, I want that's a, there's a privacy element to it as well. But you know, you, you look at a con list and you look at like the you know maybe not the top ten or fifteen people out of the four hundred, but maybe like the the middle tier almost always shows up in the green room. And there's a lot of regulars up there too. I mean, I see people year after year there that is you know for the last nine years we get a we start conversations and we continue on the next year that we see each other. Very cool, very fun stuff. Uh, the best thing about the green room, though, is that there's free drinks, free snacks, uh, soft drinks during the day, but uh, free alcohol uh, every night until they close at 1 a.m. Um, so I rarely pay for anything when I'm at a con like this because I just kind of hold off until the evening and, and uh, get my fill. Uh, I have been walked home from there before, nothing dangerous, but uh, uh, the people take good care of me while I'm there. They want to make sure that I'm uh, doing okay when I'm in there. Um, and uh, the, the, there's this guy, Carl, that actually sort of runs the joint, and he comes up with these wild concoctions mixed up with maybe six or seven different uh, 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 mixers and, and some liqueur of some kind. And uh, he's always handing those out, and they, they usually sneak up on you, which makes it really good. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm a bit of a I knock back a few, and it's always fun to be able to go there. That's that's sort of my I don't get paid for being a Dragon Con, so I figure if I take my uh, my pay in alcohol, it's probably reasonable. Um, then, uh, of course, another activity that I do is attend panels. So uh, there's a huge schedule. There's 30 different tracks at Dragon Con. So it's it's an amazing array of things to choose from. There's almost always in every hour of the day something that I could go do. Of course, then I wouldn't be doing some of these other things. So I have to kind of uh, you know manage that out. I did attend a couple of uh, 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 podcasting panels, including the one that uh, Tom Merritt and Veronica Belmont sort of started with. Um, and I also attended uh, the Not Safe for Work, no, the NSFW. I don't know what that actually means, but it's, it looks like Not Safe for Work. But the NSFW um, uh, panel that uh, Brian Bushwood did live, and I sat in the front row. So if you look at the videos of that, I have that on my blog as well, a link to it. You can actually see me sitting right there in the front row, and I'm sitting right next to Jedi Jenny. So she's wearing some sort of scout trooper outfit of some kind. Uh, so you can actually see us in the video waving every once in a while. Um, and I tried to attend a couple other panels. Uh, I sort of poked my head in, in a couple, as I recall, uh, but didn't spend a lot of time going to all of them. Because, um, really, uh, there's so many other things to do. Um, and I'm also on a few panels. This is sort of what actually brings me there as a guest. There's a traditional uh, – I'm, I'm on the uh, EFF track, which is the Computers in the Law, Computers in Legality, and things like that. Uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation track, sponsored by the local EFF uh, group. And I'm always on two panels called Hacking 101 and Hacking 201. Hacking 101 is just sort of an introduction to uh, appropriating things to use them differently than they would normally would have been. Hacking 201 is a little crazier because we do it on uh, Saturday night. Is it Saturday night? No. Sunday night. We do it on Sunday night. And um, we bring in uh, a whole 
caseload, cases and caseload of alcohol and uh, usually beers, but uh, there's also some other things there too, ciders and things like that. Typically nothing strong, just the, uh, the, the, the sort of low-grade stuff. But uh, we, the room is always packed. Anybody who asks a question that is interesting or uh, different or not just to get a beer will get a beer, uh, which is really uh, the reason most people go. And then we, we run that panel starting at 10 p.m. Around midnight, 1230, we take a pizza order and we bring in pizzas for everybody. We take a collection up for that. And that panel has been known to run until they kick us out at 4 or 430, something like that. Uh, I was there for most of it. Uh, Sunday night, I left a little bit early because I just, it had been a long, long day and I couldn't go much further than that. Uh, but we, again, we ask, we ask and answer great questions. I have a lot of fun with that. Uh, we also have a sniffer set up on the Wi-Fi. We provide free Wi-Fi, which is great, but there's a sniffer set up to see if you're passing your passwords and they show up on the big board, uh, in real time. So, uh, this is also a lesson in how bad Wi-Fi security actually is. So, uh, we try to let people educated with that. Um, the, uh, the track chair for EFF always wants to make sure that I have some other panel that I'm doing to sort of justify me not just coming for hacking 101 and 201. And this year, the other panel that I had to actually prepare for a little bit was Facebook privacy. And of course, people are laughing listening to that already. There's no Facebook privacy. But it was great because I had a paralegal and a lawyer with me, and they were actually answering all the questions and bringing up case law and stuff. And what my job on that panel actually ended up being is that I'm really, really good at Googling things. So I Googled for uh, everything I could uh, whenever anybody would talk about something and immediately put it up on the screen so everybody knew, oh, that, that particular case, blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, then I actually had it up on the screen within seconds. Thank you, Google. It worked really well. Uh, one of the other things I did was a live Twit TV uh, meetup. We uh, met with Tom Mayer, uh, Veronica Belmont, and Brian Brushwood at the uh, 45th floor uh, rotating uh, restaurant bar. Uh, I forget the name of it. Sunfire, Sun something. Now everybody in Atlanta is screaming, it's this! Okay, sorry. The thing that rotates to the top of the tallest uh, restaurant there. Um, and what's great is I sat in the rotating part, but the actual meetup was in the stationary part. So I was sort of cruising by at about two miles an hour past the whole group, waving hello and stuff while I was t- tipping back a drink there before my other panel. Uh, that was fun, though. I'm meeting up with these guys again. You know, I'm, We're all buddies since I'm now working with Twit TV a lot. Um, one of the other things I do is sleep, uh, damn little of that, uh, just, you know, basically I would get back in five or six in the morning and have to turn right around and get up and start doing things again. Um, and immediately following sleep was always a period of hangover recovery, lots of water, lots of sitting very quietly, uh, checking my email, uh, and staring out the window, you know, just not a lot of stuff going on there. Uh, so, you know, uh, and during one of those hangover recovery periods, actually, is when uh, you, Tony, was get- were getting the uh, award. So I was watching the uh, tweets from that and uh, replied back. Of course, it was, uh, I don't, don't think I actually replied till about 10 or 11 because, uh, in Atlanta time, because it was, uh, that was one of those early mornings for me, or one of those late mornings for me anyway. Uh, another part of the whole Dragon Con experience, of, or any con experience where there's any length to it, is elevators. They're waiting for elevators, going up and down in elevators. Luckily, most of the conferences on the ground floors or up and down some stairs or uh, through the little habit trails that connect the, the few hotels together. So it's not much going up and down elevators. It's up, up and going down escalators a lot. But uh, the the uh, the con suite, the uh, uh, green room, is on the 17th floor of the Hyatt. And the Hyatt has the worst elevator system of all because it's just a lot of people stay there. Yeah, and there aren't enough elevators for that place. And people are 
like going down to go up, which I'm, uh, I could do a whole rant on that about how that's actually less efficient and harms everybody. But maybe I'll save that for another day because I have some specific recommendations for people who run cons. Uh, you'll have to invite me, Tony, to uh, actually give that whole details of what elevator practices you should have at cons. Anyway, um, then I also part of the experience always is heading home. I'm always so sad when it's over. I, it's almost like I, I want to be in denial that I'm actually leaving. Uh, you know, I just, I just kind of pretend that it's not there. And I have to like tweet two or three times that I'm sad because I'm leaving again. Um, although this was, uh, this particular exit was punctuated a little bit, uh, did a little bit of unusual stuff because we had a hotel fire at uh, two or three in the morning in the hotel we were in and it completely burned out, uh, one of the elevator motors. Somebody tried to put too many people on an elevator and send it up and down or something. And so, uh, when we woke up and we were trying to check out, uh, we couldn't get a cart up to our room because, uh, uh, because the elevators weren't working. They had just the one, uh, the one, uh, elevator for the staff and not enough for us. And we were on the sixth floor, which wasn't bad, but I tell you, checking out was really a mess this time. And so that kind of distracted me from the typical sort of sentimental being sad. I didn't really get sad much till I got all the way to the airport and realized, uh, there's all those people back there that I made friends with and people I saw from previous years and, and new friends that I just made and all that stuff. And now it's going to have to wait another year till I come back again. Um, and yeah, sure enough, I'm, uh, that was my ninth time. And if they let me come back as a guest again next year, which I hear is pretty likely unless I threw somebody over the balcony and I don't remember doing that. So I'm probably good to go again next year, presuming I can come up with something useful to talk about on the EFF track, or maybe the podcasting track this year. I may even imply in the podcasting track, since I know a little bit about podcasting. Anyway, uh, sorry I don't have some background sounds from people walking by, but I was thinking about doing this uh, report actually live on the floor, but you can't always control what noise you're going to hear nearby, just like you heard my phone ring a couple minutes ago there. Um, so I'm doing it safely from having, uh, from my, my layer of solitude in Portland, Oregon. So uh, that's why it's a little bit quieter here. The same place that, uh, in the same microphone that I use to record, uh, jumpers and, uh, 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 personal Jesus that you probably have already heard in this uh, podcast stream. And I uh, hope to be recording a bunch more for you, Tony, if you'll let me. Uh, sounds like, uh, again, that's also something that uh, I haven't uh, screwed up totally enough, bad enough that you're saying no to. So, Tony, sorry for the lateness of it. Hopefully you can get it into this week's show. And if not, uh, uh, well, put it next week's show because uh, Dragon Con is still relevant. That's the way it works. Uh, so this is uh, Randall Schwartz, uh, your Dragon Con reporter, signing off. <laughs> Randall, thank you so much. Do look out for some more work by Randall with his narrations. So the Starship Sova Interrogations asks, Samuel Delaney, are you a science fiction writer? Oh, very much am I a science fiction writer. I love science fiction. I've been reading it all my life. Uh, it's given me my, um, it's given me what reputation I have, um, however minuscule, uh, and it's given me my, a good deal of my livelihood for the last um, 20, 25 years. Of course, I've been a, a university press professor as well, uh, although even there, some of, um, a good deal of what I've ta- taught has been science fiction, although now I seem to be teaching um, basically um, creative writing in general, which is an interesting uh, development on, on top of that. Tell me about your childhood. Well, I um, I grew up. I was I was born in Harlem, which is the black ghetto of New York City. 
uh, in uh, Harlem Hospital on 138th Street and Lenox Avenue, and my father ran a funeral home uh, on 7th Avenue, and we lived on the top two stories. We lived in the top two stories of the house, uh, and he had his funeral parlor in the bottom um, story. It was a great deal of fun with my uh, um, with my mates on the block, um, you know, bring, taking them into the uh, uh, funeral parlor and saying, "Would you like to see a dead body?" and you know, and getting them to come in and then turning around and going, "Yeah!" and they'd all turn around and run out. Uh, I was a very uh, 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 what would you say, obstreperous little boy at six, seven, and eight. Uh, but eventually, um, I, I calmed down a little bit <laughs> from that. Uh, and um, as I said, I was a, I was a very um, committed reader, and I did a lot of reading, uh, not only science fiction, but all sorts of other kinds of, all sorts of other writing as well. Um, and I read, uh, oh, um, as time went on, I read a lot of James Baldwin, um, who was a big influence on me, as well as people like Theodore Sturgeon, who uh, completely knocked me out. I was a great fan of Ray Bradbury, too, um, when I started reading him at about 10, 11, 12. Um, and Catherine McLean, whom I started reading a little older, when I was a little older, uh, she was a, uh, her, her work, I thought, was really interesting. Uh, it's a, a, she... Um, uh, I know she went on to win a, a Nebula Award for a uh, for a novel, uh, the title of which escapes me. Uh, however, um, I always thought I'd, I'd like to see people go back to some of her work. She had a collection of stories called The Diploids, which I always thought was a, a, a sadly underrated collection of stories, and she was a beautiful writer. How did you get started in the science fiction genre? Well, um, I didn't uh, go into it with um, um, with an attempt. You know, I didn't I didn't go into writing science fiction with the idea of I want to be a science fiction writer. I just wanted to be a writer, uh, and uh, I got married fairly young. Uh, I had uh, decided uh, we my my wife, who was the, the poet Marilyn Hacker, she was eighteen and I was nineteen when we got married, and uh, she was a very bright young woman. And um, lying about her age, she got a job. <clears throat> she said she went to high school, rather she went to college when she was 15. And by the time she was 18, she had graduated from university. Um, you know, and so she, um, lying about her age, she got a job as an editorial assistant at Ace Books. She said she was uh, 21, uh, and that seemed like a big difference to us at the time between 18 and 21. Now it seems perfectly meaningless, but uh, back then in uh, 1961, uh, 1962, it seemed like um, um, quite a lot. Um, anyway, she'd come home and she would um, um, be kind of uh, um, unhappy with some of the things that she was editing uh, at Ace Books, uh, where she worked, and um, so I began to write a story um, indeed, a novel um, for her that you know, addressed some of the problems that she found with the work that she had to deal with. Things like um, the heroines, which tended to, who, who tended to be either complete wimps who got rescued, uh, or they were um, absolutely unbelievably vicious femme fatales, uh, and uh, that, that was the 
the, the entire spectrum of women characters. Um, and the and she was also uh, I think put out a little bit by the over, the corresponding over maleness of the uh, her- heroes uh, who tended to be cigar smoking um, space captains was the only thing anybody was interested in back then. Um, so I wrote a uh, I started a novel who the main character was a poet, and I and also the. Uh, um, the the female there were there were women in the story um, who did something besides uh, just get rescued or you know or be unbelievably evil uh, and uh, when we was when I was about halfway through with it and she was reading this sort of chapter at a time I'd, I'd do better maybe a chapter every couple of days um, she she read it and she said you know this is really pretty good Chip why don't you, why don't, well, we should, you should hand it in. And I said, oh, come on, don't be silly. This is just for you. Uh, and she said, no, no, I think it really is. And so when I finally finished it, um, she took it in. Uh, one of her jobs was to read the slush pile. That's the pile of unsolicited manuscripts that all publishers get. And, um, and her job was to go through it. And if there was anything worth looking at, she was supposed to pass it on to the editor-in-chief. And so she um, uh, put my manuscript in it. We changed, we we did it under a pseudonym. Um, the pseudonym was Bruno Calabro. I don't know where, where I got that. Actually, I do. It was a character in another story of mine. <laughs> but uh, um, she gave that to the editor in chief, Don Walheim, uh, who was then head of Ace Books, and he read it. And uh, to everybody's surprise, certainly to mine, he said, "You know, I think that's pretty good. I mean, we will publish it." So uh, he drew up contracts, and um, after the contracts were drawn up, uh, Marilyn told him, oh, by the way, that actually is my husband, uh, whom you've met a couple of times, you know, uh, Samuel Delaney. And he said, well, I'm awfully glad of that because I hate the name Bruno Calabra. (laughs) (laughs) So I went back to being Samuel Delaney. And uh, that was my first novel, The Jewels of Aptor, which was came out in December of 1962. Um, I had finished it when I was 20, and it was published a few months later when I was out of that. I had finished it when I was 19, and it was published a few months later when I was 20. And so that's how I got started in the science fiction genre. It just sort of happened, and I, because I guess I had a place to sell the science fiction. Uh, I went on to write other science fiction novels, and when I'd written, um, oh, uh, two-thirds of a trilogy and, an, and then another little short novel as well, so that I'd actually had four novels, four science fiction novels published, I, I, I said to myself one day, you know, you must be a science fiction writer because you, you, you've sold four of the things. Uh, and uh, from then on, I think, figured, well, let's, how can I become a better science fiction writer? But um, I never made any attempt to figure out how to be a science fiction writer. That kind of just happened, and I just kind of slid into it. And so I've been doing that ever since. Um, and I've also written other, many other things as well as science fiction, which also I enjoy doing uh, as well. Which single science fiction writer has most influenced your own style? Um... If I had to choose one, it would probably be Sturgeon. Um, he, I think he's, he's a, uh, for me, he's, an, he's a major 
American short story writer. His his work have been works have been coming out uh, from um, uh, in in a series of so far I believe it's twelve or thirteen hardcover volumes, and I think there's one more to go, and the entire corpus of short fiction will be out. Uh, they're not doing the novels, but uh, they are doing all the short fiction, and I think that's wonderful because he, he, the short the short stories really were his forte, uh, and and they um, m- the vast majority of them are are range from very good to excellent. I mean, he's a kind of he's practically like. Um, uh, Chekhov, um, I think he, I, I don't think it's it's unreasonable to compare him his work to Chekhov, and his work is a kind of an amazing portrait of mid-century uh, America. Um, it, it spans over so many different uh, kinds of people. Um, there are lots of things that he didn't touch on. There are not uh, very many uh, black uh, characters in the work, uh, although he does have a remarkable range of women characters uh, are um, represented in his work. That is something that he does do. Uh, there are not um, a lot, considering the number of Latino people who were living in the United States, there are not that many, although there are some. Uh, and they're pretty pretty rich characters uh, when he gets around to doing it. But even though there are these, you know, sort of uh, holes, um, when you start comparing him to the other writers who are around at the same time, whether they be science fictional, science fiction writers, uh, or um, literary writers, he stands, stands up very, very well. And I think he's just an, a major American short story writer, and I'm very, very happy to see uh, people beginning to pay some serious attention to him, uh, even though um, he's been dead for um, oh, since what eighty-seven, I think, is when he died. Which book by another author do you wish you had written? Which book do I wish I had written? Uh, that's um, um, I could answer it glibly uh, and um, say one of the books that I wish I had written um, is Juna Barnes's Nightwood. Um, I, I mention it because it's probably the single book that I have read, reread more times than any other. I've read it at least 35 times. Uh, and uh, that was a book she wrote in 1936, uh, uh, a story about a, a, a rather tragic story about a lesbian love affair. Um, but it was written in an amazing um, um, prose that um, her, her prose was just something that just hadn't been seen before and probably you'd say hasn't really been seen since it was just an amazing sort of explosion of just energy color uh of um observation you know phrases like life the permission to know death uh, and things like that on the, all through it and it's an amazing it's an amazing piece of work uh, it has these monologues by a character named uh, Dr. Uh, Dante, Dante Mighty Grain of Salt O'Connor, uh, who uh, every time you sort of turn him loose and give, you, give, him a, give him a drink, he starts to extemporize in this weird, in this weird almost in, incomprehensible language, although if you read it carefully, it's, it, it has a lot to say about human, you know, about the human condition. Uh, and so that's, that's one of the books, certainly, uh, that, 
I wish I had written myself. But I think every good book that I read, there's a little, you know, there's a little envy uh, involved in it. And I think that's one of the things that keeps us, makes us go on writing, is the fact that we do envy uh, the good things that other writers do. What would be the one question you would ask a science fiction writer? What the one question that I would ask a science fiction writer? Uh, <clears throat> how do you find time to write and uh, also make a living? <laughs> uh, and can the, can you do the two of them together? I'd be curious what some of the answers with that would be. Uh, I because I've had to teach uh, for the last twenty five years. Uh, I'm painfully aware uh, that that having to have teach really does cut up cut into your productive time. Uh, and so I feel like I haven't had um, as much time to write as I would like. Um, and um, that's, that's, that's painful to me. Uh, I like teaching. I get a lot out of it, uh, and I enjoy doing it. Um, I don't enjoy administrating it that much, and that one of the things that's happened to me is I'm now the, um, the administrative director of the um, Graduate Creative Writing Program at Temple University, and the administration um, is not that satisfying to me, although the teaching of the workshops and the teaching of related classes, uh, I do enjoy that. I do enjoy working with the students on their actual stories. For what reason do you write science fiction in preference to other classes of literature? Well, of course, the, the, I, uh, uh, I don't, uh, which is to say I write uh, other classes of literature, and I, other, and I also write science fiction, so I don't write one to the exclusion of the others. Um, my last novel, uh, something a purely um, uh, literary novel called Dark Reflections, uh, won the Stonewall Book Award uh, a couple of years ago, uh, and uh, I'm very pleased that it did. Uh, and it's a book about you know it's just it's a book that that has nothing to do you know nothing to do with science fiction at all. Although the book that I'm I, that will be coming out next. Uh, which is a, a book called Through the Valley of the Nest of Spiders, um, is while it's not, to call it a science fiction book is probably unfair um, because it does, I don't think it feels like a science fiction book. Nevertheless, it starts in 2007 uh, when the story begins. It starts in the middle of, uh, on a July day in 2007 and then um, blithely goes on ahead for the next um, 75 or so years, uh, and uh, um, carries the main character or main characters who meet on that day in uh, July of 2007, uh, and who get together and have a, a two working class gay men um, who meet in a in a truck stop restroom on the Georgia coast, and they. Um, get together with a partnership, that la and they stay together until for the rest of their lives. Um, and it, it recounts their lives into the future. And um, they're, they're not in the center of things. Um, um, so they, they, they hear about things that are science fictional, you know, because somebody leaves a, a newspaper on a, uh, on a uh, coffee shop 
counter or something like that, or, or a table in a coffee shop, uh, or somebody, uh, or they you, you know something is played over a, a television set in a bar that they hear about. But by and large, um, these things don't really affect them. You know, they they live in one of these places that if you discovered it today, you would probably say, you know, that place is just like it was in 1950. Uh, and uh, the, again, the the world hasn't their world doesn't change doesn't seem to change at the same speed that the rest of the world you know uh, can sometimes seem to develop so whether that is a science fiction novel or not um, I leave up to the reader I don't uh, if you want to call it science fiction it's fine with me if you don't want to call it science fiction that's equally fine with me as I said, and then it's called Through the Valley of the Nest of Spiders, and it is supposed to be out, out from Allison Books in February. What one aspect of science fiction writing is the most difficult? Uh, again, um, trying to, in, in the real world where you have to make a living, um, trying to find the time uh, to, um, you know, to, to write. Um, it's, it's funny, I think the, the, the poet the uh, poet Goethe, the German poet Goethe, uh, put it remarkably well um, um, when he was alive. He said, as soon as a a man, he said man, although I think it also today, it also applies to women as well, as soon as a man does something admirable, the entire universe seems to conspire to make sure that he never does it again. Uh, And uh, I, uh, it seems that way. You, you, you write a few books that people like and uh, and that they praise, and then they give you a teaching job, uh, and then you have to do everything else but write uh, in order to make your, you know, make uh, uh, make your living. Uh, And the one thing that you can't do or do uh, as much as you'd like to is the writing that uh, got you the job in the first place. Does it get any easier? No, you know that's that's something that um, that people have to understand, and I, I one of the things that I try to uh, gen- gently make my students aware of: writing will never be any easier for you than it is today, right now, uh, and uh, in five minutes it's going to be a tiny bit harder, and in twenty minutes it's going to be a tiny bit harder than that. Uh, so it gets harder and harder as you go older, grow older, uh, unless. You are the kind of writer who thinks that, okay, now I know how to write and I can put anything down. Uh, then you put down garbage. Uh, and, you know, there are a lot of writers, unfortunately, who, as they grow older and older, uh, do, um, um, their writing does become weaker and weaker uh, because they think they now, they think, now I know how to write. Uh, but nobody knows how to write. You have to learn how to write again practically with each sentence you start uh, and with each new um, Topic that you decide to write about, um, and so and I and I feel that very strongly. So it doesn't no, it doesn't get any easier. It gets harder. Describe your daily work and day. Get up at four o'clock in the morning, uh, and uh, um, if I'm in Philadelphia, which is where I uh, where I teach here at Temple University, I have a little apartment down here in Philadelphia. Uh, get up at four o'clock in the morning, uh, take a shower, uh, get myself together, go out, stop at the Midtown Diner on the corner of Samson Street, uh, have myself uh, some coffee, um, some uh, hash fried potato, some hash brown potatoes. Uh, a couple of scrambled eggs, 
uh, and some bacon, a nice American breakfast, uh, as it used to be called, and uh, then um, uh, go on into work. And uh, I usually get here at um, 7.30 or so, sometimes a quarter, sometimes before 7. And, and then I start work and um, do the reading and writing I have to do uh, and try to get the... Uh, uh, you know, and try to get as much work done as I possibly can. And that goes on and on until somebody calls me up and asks me into, uh, um, a list of interesting questions like this. And then I try to answer those uh, as carefully as I can. What's the strangest thing you've ever done while researching? I don't do research. Uh, or at least I don't do research um, that... Um, that I do as research. I do lots and lots of auxiliary reading, lots and lots of auxiliary um, exploration, uh, and then eventually um, all some of this will come together and uh, uh, and generate a novel, or generate a section of a novel, or generate uh, some ideas for a novel uh, or a story, as the case may be. But I don't rarely do I. Um, um, think of a story and then think, I now have to go and find out about X, Y, or Z. Um, I, I, for me, it's more fun the other way. So there's nothing particularly odd that I've done um, uh, that's done specifically for research. There are people I, um, recently, um, a couple of years ago, someone made a, a DVD about me uh, and uh, called The Polymath or the life and opinions of Samuel Art, a lady, uh, Esquire, uh, a filmmaker named Fred Barney Taylor. And that talks about, you know, uh, the life that I live, uh, getting up at four o'clock in the morning and doing the various things that I do to, uh, do my writing. Uh, but, uh, uh, I do a lot of, I spend a lot of time at my writing, uh, as, as much as I possibly can. Uh, and of course, I have to spend a lot of time administering the uh, the work that I need to do to um, uh, run the uh, uh, the writing program here at the university. Uh, but there's no there's no particular thing that you, that I do that I've done uh, research wise that strikes me as weird or odd. I just try, I try to live a a pleasant, happy life, uh, you know, a pleasurable a pleasurable, quiet life, uh, and. Uh, um, you know, and I, I, I don't know whether I, I, you know, here I am almost 70. I, you know, I'm a, um, a stone's throw uh, away from 70 years old. And um, I seem to be, you know, close to, close to succeeding in that. Me and my partner uh, are, are, you know, are, are really comfortable with one another. Uh, I don't see him anywhere to, because I spend as much time as I do down here in Philadelphia. So, you know, we, uh, we speak to each other on the phone, you know, every day or every couple of days. Uh, and then every 10 days or so, I go up for a four-day weekend to spend with him up in New York. Do you think science fiction as a genre is different from other genres? Absolutely. Yes, it is very different. All the genres are different. That's what makes them, that's what makes them their own thing. Poetry is different from uh, prose. Uh, drama is different from poetry and prose. Science fiction is different from naturalistic fiction, uh, and they're you know, and they're all they're all different from one another. Um, and uh, I, I've I've uh, in the uh, dozen odd books of nonfiction that I've written, many of which are are critical. Um, you'll find my takes on what makes science fiction. Uh, different, you know, uh, both historically uh, and uh, 
and at any given you know at any given moment. What do you consider the chief value of science fiction? Uh, for me, the chief value of science fiction is, as I, is that it, is its difference from literature. Uh, it's specifically the fact that it is different from uh, the literary. Uh, science fiction is, I, I consider it a paraliterary genre. Uh, this is not to run down either literature or paraliterature. I think they're both necessary, uh, and that the, uh, in many senses, in many, in many ways, uh, the difference is, is relatively arbitrary. But one of the differences is that, uh, um, the paraliterary genres tend to, uh, their particular strength is that they can analyze the object, the social object directly. Whereas literature, um, since, uh, oh, World War One, when it really kind of, you know, became a, a, um, the, the thing that we recognize as literature today um, through being studied in universities and what have you uh, becomes more and more um, a critique of the subject, uh, of psychology, of, of internal states. And I think both are needed. Uh, but I think, um, you know, you... Uh, get to criticize, uh, or and by, by criticize, I don't mean say what's wrong with, but analyze, show how it works, make it vivid to people, uh, show uh, how you know the the world that is the case. Uh, to take the take a, to borrow a sentence from the first um, uh, proposition in, in Wittgenstein's Tractatus, uh, uh, to show how the world that is the case functions and how it functions vividly. That's one of the things that science fiction and the paraliterary genres in general can do. And whereas literature tends to show how the, um, how the mind, how the psychology, how psychology, how perception functions equally vividly. And both of them are really important, important tasks. Has science fiction ever disappointed you? Well, I mean, um, yes, and so has literature, which is to say every time I read a bad science fiction novel, there are many, many of them out there. Uh, yeah, I'm disappointed. And any time I read a bad literary novel, uh, I am equally disappointed. Um, you know, so, and, and in the words of, uh, again, to, to uh, um, use Theodore Sturgeon's uh, famous um, dictum, I think we call it Sturgeon's Rule, you know, 90, 95% of everything is crap. Uh, and that goes for literature, and that goes for science fiction, too. So most of it is not terribly new. So a lot of it is disappointing, yes. you know. But then you have to go and write stuff that you, know, you think is not going to disappoint you, uh, and you have to look for stuff that other people write that is not going to disappoint you. And that, that is out there, too, you know, whether it be, uh, you know, married. Mary Doria Russell's uh, Sparrow, uh, a, a book that is not disappointing in any particular, in any way at all, uh, or you know, or uh, Alfred Bester's The Star Is My Destination, uh, or um, Catherine McLean's, McLean's uh, The Diploids, you know, three books that are not in any way at all disappointing. Is there still new ground to be covered in science fiction literature? Absolutely, of course. Yes, there. Yes, because so many, so many of it, you, you know, you look at all the ones that you look at any bad, any any bad science fiction novel of which there are many, many out there. Uh, just look at it and think, you know, so maybe could, could somebody write a good science fiction novel about this this idea uh, that was handled poorly? And that that's you know, all of that is potentially new ground. Chip Delaney, thank you very much. 
Thank you very much. This has been kind of interesting. Chip, that was excellent. Honestly, that was perfect. Lovely. Oh, well, good. I hope, I hope it's useful to you. Oh, yes. But I mean, hopefully we'll chat on a little bit longer. You know what I mean? Just like more relaxed there now. But that was... I okay. was just... Well, if you've got any other questions, I'll, I'll field those as well. Well, I'll tell you what, um, because there's a couple of times in, in a two-week cycle, I've got to get up now for about 4.30 in the morning, probably about three times in that two-week cycle, I've got to get up to do a shift. And, oh, it hurts so much. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can. Oh, so do you just get up because you want, to, you want to kind of prepare yourself for the day, or is it just your, your body clock's in that week? You not have a bit longer lying? Yeah, it's just a, um, I've, every once in a while. I, every, I've, been known to, I've been known to sleep till 5.30 every once in a while, <laughs> I confess, especially as I get older. But 4 o'clock is usually, 4, 4, 4, 4.20 is my, you know, is my usual time when I, you know, when I just think, oh, it's time to get up. You know? And yes, it's dark you know, uh, out when uh, I do. So you must put yourself to bed early, do you? Are you, are you uh... Yeah, I'm, I'm an early to bed, early to rise. I mean, I'm, I'm most of the time I'm 7.30, you know, 7, 7.30, 8 o'clock, 8.30. And, of course, you know, as you get older, you know, you want to, you know, you know life, life doesn't seem so interesting after, after 8 o'clock at night, or at least not to me. <laughs> you know, that's what I was thinking as well when you answered the questions. You know, about your, your, doing, your, your kind of professor work, is it not time now then just to say, right, that's enough. I've done enough day. I'm going to retire now and just enjoy doing writing. Well, I, I like to give my first energies to the writing. Um, that's one of the things, again, I also tell my students. I said, you know, when, look, if you're going to be a writer, um, you've got to put writing first. Writing has got to come, you know, uh, first. You know, anything, you know, you've got to put everything else after the writing. Uh, you can't, you know, if you, if you leave the writing until you get everything else done, you'll never write, you know, because there's always something else that, you know, really is necessary to do. Uh, and so you just have to go and, you know, do the writing first. And that's, that's the way I try to do it. Uh, and that's, you know, that's the time when I get the stuff done. Is it, is it hard though? Because, you know, you, you, you're obviously on a good wage of being a professor. Is it, does that not give you a nice, comfortable cushion just to kind of sometimes stay... I, I, I could have done writing, you know, if I was kind of destitute and needed to kind of pound out the words. Well, um, you know, I don't know. I, I, I um, it's as I said, you know, the um, the professing, as it were, will take you further and further <laughs> away from the writing. Uh, and the point is, the, the professing is fun. I mean, there's there there's a, there is a um, there are. Um, rewards, you know, from teaching and seeing people learn things that they didn't know before and making them, uh, giving them a sense that, uh, you know, of making the world open up for them uh, and making them, allowing them to understand things that they didn't understand before. This is a, that's a very rewarding thing to do. Uh, but you can let that take over. Uh, and if you let it take over too much, you suddenly realize that you're not, you know, you're not doing the writing anymore uh, or you haven't had time to do the writing. Uh, and, um, you know, so you, you, you gotta, you know, and one of the things that I, you know, I think as I, as, as I tell, again, another thing that I tell my students all the time, you know, I think I'm a decent teacher. I think I'm a good teacher, but I think I'm a better than good writer. I think I'm a, I'm a, you know, uh, I think I write better than I teach. Uh, and so I want to do the writing because that's the stuff that I do the best. Um, and, and it seems, what would you say, uh, a waste uh, of, you know, a waste of a talent 
to spend all the time teaching and not to get writing done because you're so busy teaching. I mean, I think the teaching is very important, but I think the writing is important too. And you know, and that's what I. That's what I. That's that's. I wouldn't have been a. Te- I wouldn't have been given the teaching job if I hadn't been a writer. And some. And if somebody hadn't thought I was doing the writing well. Does Does writing ever get you in a knot? You know, when you when you. In the middle of a novel, novel, do you ever do you ever get the writer's block, or do you ever just hit hit Not the wall? Blo- I certainly get into knots all the time. I spend the entire time I'm writing in a knot, uh, but it's not. I, I I don't have too much um, writer's block. Um, it does take energy to write. I mean, you you really have to put a great deal of energy into it. Uh, and of course, at seventy, I don't have the kind of energy that I had when I was forty or fifty, uh, not to mention twenty or or thirty. Um, so you don't, I, I don't produce as much uh, as I did, you know, um, ten years ago, twenty years ago, thirty years ago. Is it a comf- uh, is it a comfortable experience for your writing? Do you know? What- yeah, if by and large, yes, I'm, I, I enjoy when when it when the writing is going well. I like that feeling. I like I, that's that's a good feeling, you know. Yeah, it is a good feeling when it's going well. Last question then, Chip. What are you reading at the moment? What can you recommend for listeners out there? What are you reading? What am I reading? Well, um, I'm on the, um, the, the. We have a, a contest that's in this in this uh, country called the National Book Awards. And uh, right now, and I was I was asked um, this past year to be a judge of the National Book Awards, and so I said, okay, I'll, I would do it. And suddenly, every book that was published, every piece of fiction that was published in the past year has been sent to my office. And so, <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm I'm swamped with novels that I have to at least look at, and you know, and make you know. Uh, I'm unfortunately I'm not allowed to talk about them. Uh, it goes with being a judge. This is all very confidential. Uh, as it should be, you know, it's because they don't want to um, have everything being given away, you know. But I'm basically what I'm doing is I'm reading lots and lots of novels uh, and uh, finding an interest. It's an interesting experience. It, it really is. But that's unfortunately that's about all I can say about it. Um, no, that's you know, fine. I mean, when you're doing all that reading, then it must be taking up your time for the writing as well. Do you know it? Well, it does. Yes, it, yes. exactly. It does. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are you right? Like you say, Nest of Spiders. When's Nest of Spiders coming out? Did you say? Yeah, through the Valley of the Nest of Spiders. It's it's well. It was last. The, uh, it's uh, Allison Books, uh, who is the publisher, um, has got it in their catalog for February. Uh, although there's, you know, and so we'll see. Uh, uh, there's some talk that they they may actually have to delay it another couple of months, but I'm not sure. Uh, it was originally. Um, uh, Scheduled for November, and then they they pushed it off from November to February. Uh, so we'll see how what's going on uh, and see how it comes out. I'm you know I'm I'm I'm, I'm sure it'll, they'll get to it eventually. <laughs> are you are you working on another one then now? Or Pardon me? Are you working on another novel now? Um, well, I've I've got everything. I've I've always got something going. Yeah, I, I do. Mm-hmm. But again, I don't <laughs> I don't like to talk. I don't oh, like no. to talk. I don't like to talk about my the work I'm doing, you know, um, you know, until it's until it's until I finished my, you know, I finished my my the draft that I'm comfortable with. Um, I, I suffer a little bit from the uh, what is it the guy what I call it, the guy next to you at the bar syndrome. 
which is to say when you're you know if you if you're standing at a bar and you're having a you're 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 you're, you're having your having a pipe and enjoying it uh, and then you start telling somebody the guy next to you about this book you're going to write you know you tell them all about the book you know from the beginning to the end and then you go home and you never write it because you've already talked it out. Whereas if you keep it in, then the only thing to do is to sit down and actually write it. So I try not to talk about the, some of the things that I'm planning to write in the future. I'm afraid they will that will undercut actually doing it. Well, Chip, you've been a lovely star. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for very. I'm very honored that you had that you've had me on the show. There you go. How about that? Samuel R. Delaney. <laughs> wow. Chip, sir, thank you very much. Next up is another piece of main fiction. It is Cafe Culture by Jack Dan. Jack Dan is a multiple award-winning author who has written or edited over 75 books, including the international bestseller The Memory Cathedral, which was number one on the age bestsellers list. He also wrote The Silent, which Library Journal chose as one of their hot picks. There is a trade paperback edition now of The Dragon Book, edited by Jack and Gardner Dozwas, which is published in the US by Ace Books. Jack Dan lives in Australia on a farm overlooking the sea. He commutes back and forth to Los Angeles and New York. I put a link on to Jack's site. The story is narrated by Mike Boris. As you know, Mike Boris lives at MikeBorisAudio.com. He's narrated a couple of stories, or many stories, for Starship Sova. And hopefully you will catch him at the end of this month as well with another story by Robert Reed. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present... Café Culture by Jack Dan. From these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion. Abraham Lincoln, Gettysburg Address After six Baptist suicide bombers met their god in the fiery nave, aisles, apse, towers, and main altar of St. Patrick's Cathedral, the cafes that crowded 50th and 51st Streets became de rigueur for writers, artists, actors, news personalities, wealthy dilettantes, Activists, dissidents, tourists, the Christian left, and wannabes. Young Muslim women, faces covered in black muslin, sip ginger ale beside their Armani-suited bearded partners, while students wearing Christ's Commandos t-shirts argued about the morality of selling a watch that had lodged in a schoolgirl's neck during an explosion on a school bus. Well, the poor thing's dead. The suicide bomber's watch went to pay for the funeral. That would have been one heck of a funeral. It was. Max Rosanna's cafe was always mobbed with those who needed to be seen and those who needed to see. And the outside tables closest to the stained-glass door of the establishment were always on reserve for the titled, the famous, and those who could slip old Max a thousand-dollar bill for a sweaty croissant and a flat white coffee. Max's was directly across the street from the cathedral ruins, and Max had his contractors cement the shards of stained glass from the exploding cathedral into the floors and ceiling of the café. At night, light strobing, Max's would glitter like an old psychedelic dream. But it was spring, 11 a.m. Friday, and the pioneers of the New Rebellion, the New Yorkers who would not even show a flicker of fear, wanted to be in the street. They were boarding their buses, riding their subways, sipping their coffees, eating their croissants and bialis, being seen at Max's, and taking their chances. 
Leo Malkin couldn't afford Max's. But he had done some renovation work on the cafe for the fat man and was always guaranteed a table somewhere on the premises. But on this clear, clean, beatifically sunny Friday morning, not a chair could be had. It was like trying to get into the Ginza Bar or the Peppermint Lounge in the middle of the last century. Two bouncers kept the line of desperate patrons-to-be away from the patio of the cafe, which looked like an oasis of shadow under its awnings and umbrellas. After being patted, introduced to a soap opera star, and consoled by Max, Leo walked toward Sixth Avenue, toward the demolished RCA building. Every cafe was mobbed, and the conversations buzzed like flies on the street. He passed a boy of around fourteen who glared at him with absolute hatred. Leo nodded to him, which admittedly was a stupid reaction. Maybe it's because I look Jewish, but I could just as easily be Arab, and he looks Semitic. Hey! Leo shouted at the boy. The boy turned and stopped. He had delicate features, dark skin, big brown eyes, and coarse black hair cut in bowl fashion. He looked somehow familiar. What's with the look? The boy was wearing jeans and a checkered work shirt. Both were slightly too large for him. The jeans were rolled in heavy cuffs over his engineer boots. The shirt was long and wasn't tucked in. The boy shook his head and smiled a beautiful ragamuffin smile that somehow chilled Leo to the bone. And then the beautiful boy was gone, snapped back into the crowd. Ikrima Margalit walked jauntily down 50th Street, the distant sun warm on his face. His ultralight explosive vest more like a silk handkerchief than a vest constructed of material that would make a belt loaded with C4 look like a New Year's Eve sparkler. He carried no detectable shrapnel, no old-fashioned yet effective ball bearings, no nails, screws, nuts, or thick wire. His very bones would pierce the non-believers. He would explode like a claymore mine, and somehow God in his mercy would turn the very sidewalk, cars, and streetlights into killing, cleansing objects of death. Those who understood such things used to call acetone peroxide mother of Satan because it was so unstable. But this new explosive was stable as a table, and it was called Mother of God after the Blessed Virgin. To his right and across the street was the old Macy's building. To his left was the noisy line of cafes his mother called Temples of Corruption. They didn't look like anything but cafes, and the people sitting around sipping coffee and smoking kef were young and happy and pretty. The air smelled perfumed. The hydrogen-powered cars whispered past, as if in slow motion. Every once in a while a driver would honk his horn in dumb rage and desperation and would be automatically fined. It was a perfect day, and Yun Ekrima could feel God so very close to him, could almost hear him between the noise of conversation, the susurration of tires, and the occasional honking horns and sirens. Ekrima knew exactly where God was. His mother had told him that he was just on the other side of the vest that was now like part of his body, part of his very being, and right next to his skin was paradise. And there, in paradise, being looked after by the perfect virgin Horis, were all his friends and heroes, including his blessed father. His mother was on this side of paradise, with him, and although Ikrima was shivering, as if cold, as if his clothes were cold and wet, he wasn't afraid. His mobile rang, a tick-tock melody, the very latest song from Memri. Hello, Mama. Hello, Ike, my blessed son. Tell me, where are you? I am at the place. 
It's just up ahead, and I can see the fat man you told me about, the one who is corruption to corruption. Yes, my son. I am almost there, Mama. But I see two girls. They are Muslims, Mama. Dressed in... They are not, his mother said. Whatever their dress, now tell me when you are ready. Now, Mama, I love you and will see you with God in paradise. Yes, my darling, yes. And Akrima Magalit pressed the little button of a detonator and became light, exploding, exposing light. He flew to his God in a million pieces. The ground exploded and shards of glass and cement and steel flew like missiles into flesh. The fat man, Max, exploded in the light, as did everyone around him. And Decrema joined the Hordes in self-abnegating love, vengeance, and honor. Ikrima's mother, Daphna, stood in the living room of her commission apartment on 184th Street. She was in her early forties, yet still considered beautiful and shapely. She held the tiny mobile phone to her ear, but the connection was dead. All she could hear was the scratching of her coarse black hair against the earpiece. Her son was suddenly, just this minute, dead, immolated in the holy cleansing fire of jihad. One minute she was with him, speaking with him, Oh, my darling, how I love you. And the next minute she was listening to her own breathing, while her beautiful, precious, brave son made his instant transit to God. He would not be tempted and seduced by life. He was the most precious of God's martyrs. She dropped the phone and bowed to Allah, who made her simultaneity of grief and poignant joy possible. She felt an overwhelming warmth in her loins, as if she were truly being touched by God. She felt a buzzing in her ears as if God was speaking directly to her, whispering to her like electricity. And she bowed to him in the east, then fell to her knees in prayer. She nodded, finished, and stood up, shouting joy at the top of her lungs. Her neighbors pounded on her door, which she opened so that she might accept their congratulations, and they sang, This is not a grieving tent, this is a congratulation tent. She and her beautiful son, Ikrima, would soon be together in paradise. He had done his duty, his last act of devotion. Soon she would do her own divine duty, but first Daphna had to work, for it was Friday, and all her clients paid her on Friday. She cleaned townhouses, condominiums, and co-ops on the Upper East Side, inside the Wall of Safety. Once she had collected her money, everyone paid in Universal, which was as good as cash, she would go to the Martyrs' Center and pay for her order of posters, bracelets, calendars, wall hangings, fridge magnets, and watches, which all contained pictures of her martyred son. Then, as a last act of faith, contrition, and celebration, the Martyrs' Center would distribute the trinkets and keepsakes, along with baskets of food and medicine, to everyone in her building. Thus did Daphna accept her neighbor's well-wishes, tears, laughter, encouragement, cakes, and coffee. Then she politely shooed everyone out of her apartment, took off her favorite crepe linen abaya with chamoset fringes, hung it in the closet on a pink cushioned hanger, and donned her own explosive vest. Dressed in jeans, flannel shirt, and a coarse black hijab that covered her hair and fastened under her chin, she left for work. Leo Malkin wasn't going to work today. His manager, Sam Feinstein, had arrived at Mrs. Edelman's penthouse at eight sharp with a plumber and a carpenter to renovate her bathroom. Mrs. Edelman was one of Leo's best customers, for she owned four slum apartment buildings that needed constant maintenance, 
Sam knew what to do and didn't need Leo's help, even though he insisted on calling Leo every five minutes for authorization. Sam did most of the work these days and would oversee five jobs today. Leo concentrated on bringing in new customers, keeping his distributors sweet, taking care of the books, and hiring helpers and tradesmen for Sam. Although it wouldn't buy him a roller or a condo inside the wall, it was a living. His Aunt Martha had willed him a lifetime tenancy in a three-bedroom walk-up on West 79th Street, which boasted glimpses of Broadway. Leo couldn't sell the condo, nor could he redecorate or renovate without permission from the state's attorneys, and as he had no children who could inherit, the condo would probably end up going to a distant cousin, or more likely to the lawyers. His ex-wife Cheryl loved the flat, as she called it, and when she left him two months ago, she told him it was harder leaving the flat than leaving him. Leah loved Cheryl and was devoted to her, obsessed with her, but for all his pleading and coaxing and acting out, she had left him for a tall, lanky, flat-chested, curly-haired woman named Nandy. Now how the hell could you fight that? He tried. Oh, Lord, he had tried. He had even swallowed his pride and accepted Cheryl's invitation that they all live together for a while as an experiment. Cheryl, for her part, was oh so solicitous in every way. She gave him her body whenever he asked. She always invited him to go out with her and Nandy, and she even urged Leo to sleep with Nandy, which he did. After that he felt tainted, hollowed out by the empty pain of grief, which he located in his solar plexus. He lost twenty pounds. Finally, he couldn't stand it any longer and asked them to leave. They joined a commune somewhere on the Lower East Side and became subdeacons of the First Church of the Epiphany. Leo walked along the edge of Central Park until he came to 79th Street. His house cleaner, Daphna, would be cleaning his apartment today. Since he usually wasn't home when she cleaned, she was pretty and Leo didn't want to chance a lawsuit, he always left her money and a note on the dining room table. She had her own set of keys. But he definitely wanted to see Daphna today. He had heard the explosion at Max Rosanna's cafe, went back to see the carnage, the explosions of flesh and fragmentation of bone, the wounded and limbless, the dead and dying. He scanned his mobile for police reports of the suicide bomber. The perpetrator was a boy, or perhaps a girl, the announcer had said, with a bowl haircut and checkered shirt, according to a video from a nearby street cam, and Leo remembered the beautiful boy he had passed on the street, remembered the look of hatred and scorn, and remembered seeing him once before, for Leo never, ever forgot a face. Leo had seen the boy when he had interviewed Daphna at his condo. He quickened his pace. Of course, the chances were long that Daphna wouldn't be working today. She took her money from the envelope on Mr. Malkin's dining-room table and left her keys. After all, she wouldn't be coming back there again. She contemplated just leaving without cleaning, but she had been paid to do a job, and she was not going to leave this world owing anybody anything. Except God. To Him she owed everything. Before she started cleaning, however, she took advantage of the privacy of Mr. Malkin's home to adjust her explosive vest just one more time. It was too tight around her breasts, she pulled it tight purposely to be reminded of the closeness of heaven and her son Ikrima, but it hurt her nipples, as her son had when he suckled. She went into Mr. Malkin's marble bathroom, which was due to be washed down with a stronger detergent, and took off her hijab and work shirt. She loosened the vest, rubbed under her breasts, which were itchy, 
and then prayed and carefully checked and retied the vest, taking special care that the detonator wire wouldn't catch when she moved her arms, bent over, or arched her back. Then she prayed and thanked God for giving her this opportunity to please Him. She would do her allotted tasks, and then without a backward turn, without even going to the toilet, changing her clothes, or washing her face, she would blow herself into paradise on a crowded street during the rush hour. Such was her plan, until she felt the profane heat of someone's eyes staring at her. She screamed as Leo Malkin grabbed her, pinning her arms behind her back. He was breathing heavily, like an animal, she thought wildly. He smelled of tar, and sweat, and burning. He smelled bestial, like the streets, like hell, like darkness. Don't move, he said, shushing her and squeezing her, and Daphna prayed, for surely this stinking pig of a man was going to rape her, bloody her vagina, which had not felt the monstrosity of a man since her husband died for God. She tried to wrench free of him, pull away just long enough to detonate her vest and blow this erectation of a building into dust and entrails. But Leo was implacably strong and disgustingly erect. She closed her eyes tight, waiting for the inevitable. If he loosened his grip for an instant, she would send him to hell, while she would be carried by winds of fire into paradise. But he pulled the wiring away from her vest in one quick, smooth movement. After all, he was an electrician and she sobbed as he relaxed his grip. He held her, as if this could become an impossible, tender moment. She felt his erection pressing hard against her, felt a terrible, ugly, guilty warmth suffusing her groin. She would give herself up to him. She wouldn't fight. She would be a statue, unfeeling, unyielding marble. There would be another day for her to join her son and husband as a martyr. And what was going to happen to her now, the horror of the next few moments— would purify her as a martyr. Perhaps, just perhaps, she might escape, run away, repair her vest, hand out gifts, explode into heaven. Abruptly he released her. Take the vest off, he said. Not with you watching me. Either that or I'll take it off for you. She nodded and removed the vest, handing it to him while she covered her breasts with her right arm. He turned away from her and standing in the bathroom doorway said, Put your shirt back on. She did, and he demanded she give him the detonator, which she had tried to hide from him. "'I saw your son,' he said. "'My son? Where?' "'On his way to Maxis. I know what he did. And so do you, don't you?' Daphne met his gaze, would not avert her eyes. "'Your son looked at me the same way you are now,' Leo said. "'How could you? Why?' And she smiled at him, just as her son had. "'Let me pass, Mr. Malkin, or do you wish to see my breasts again and humiliate yourself?' Leo stepped aside, and as Daphne walked past him, she felt an inexplicable regret. She felt an urge to succor and comfort the beast, to give herself to him. Dread and claustrophobia followed her into the elevator and into the street. If she had her vest, she would have pressed the detonator. But her last filthy thoughts would forever bar her from the ecstasy of heaven— she had consigned herself to the humiliation her son and husband had escaped. Holding the vest to his chest, Leo paced back and forth in the living room. He was still breathing heavily, was still excited, guilty, humiliated. Why had he allowed her to pass, to walk away, to procure another vest and murder innocents? He laughed at his thoughts, for there were no innocents, except little babies, perhaps. But not much of the world was lost when little babies fell back into the darkness from whence they came. 
Leo took off his shirt, loosened the straps of Daphne's vest, and then put it on, shrugging into it as if it was an old, comfortable sweater. He pieced the wiring back together, just a few twists, and made sure the connections were solid. The wiring was blue coat, which was virtually undetectable. He put on his shirt, slipped the detonator into the side pocket of his trousers, and walked out of his condo. He left the door wide open. It would be a good long walk downtown along Broadway, past the upmarket shops and bistros, past the checkpoints, and into the midtown downtown safety zones. Safely pacing, heels clicking on pavement, pushing through the crowds, walking in a straight line, fully focused, Leo and his vest, wires, and detonator went unnoticed. His mobile buzzed and vibrated insistently in his pocket, but he ignored it. He was calmness itself. He walked to the First Church of the Epiphany on 10th Street, without incident. The church was a confection of Gothic Revival style and Stanford White design. He admired it, and then walked inside, where he admired its famous and magnificent mural by John Lafarge. He stood veiled in crimson light from the great stained-glass windows above the nave, and waited. Cheryl and Nandy would surely be arriving soon, and Leah would greet them with loving-kindness and personally guide them into the blinding light and exploding stillness of ascension. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Jack Dan's and Mike. Thank you so much. Hopefully, I'll try and see if I can get another story off Jack Dan. Fantastic writer. So this takes us into the competition. I have three little hardbacks of the science fiction masterworks by our good friends at Galance. It's the H.G. Wells, the food of the gods. It's just come out, and these are, you know. I have got a little passion for these science fiction masterworks, you know, I collect them myself, and these ones are just amazing. I've got three copies of this. So how do you get one of these books, which is fantastic? Honestly, great little book. All you've got to do is take my show notes and put them on your website for the week, or for as long as you like. Just copy and paste my notes into my show notes onto your blog, saying this is what Starship Sofa is doing this week. And first one to get in touch with us, well, the first three... I'll post out a copy of this book. History Wells, The Food of the Gods. Can't say it better than that. And there's some more competitions coming up as well. I've got some more books by Galant, so do listen out for them in the future. That is Starship Sofa's Oral's Light, show 154. Two fantastic stories. A shout-out if anyone wants to do the Sofa Note Awards this year, please just drop us an email, starshipsofa at gmail.com. I mean, it's great news, Jason Sanford. Well done, Jason. That's amazing. I hope you like the Stephen R. Donaldson story. Yes, do. You know, when Starship Sofa Stories comes out and when Stephen's book comes out, do think about purchasing one or two. And don't forget the competition. All you got to do is paste and copy those show notes into your blog. Drop us an email, starshipsofa at gmail.com and I will send this book out to you. That is it. Just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. A Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.